0: This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from allcomic.com, episode 161. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton.
1: And I'm Norman and today it's time for us to exchange thoughts once again on the works of Nagata Kabi. But we're not doing it solo, because we have brought on our good friend Erica Friedman, founder of Akazu Yuri Khan. We brought her on to discuss... Nakata Kabi's My Solo Exchange Diary and her works in general and what she has done for basically the genre of graphic medicine and autobiographical memoir manga in Japan and how she's kind of revolutionized or kind of rekindled this kind of trend of creating more comics about Authors, you know, describing their own experiences and struggles with their mental health, with personal problems. Just popularized that form of expression in manga. And it's a really great conversation. And indeed, we actually recorded this... Quite a while ago, we recorded this almost exactly a year ago as a special patron bonus pod. So if you have been a $5 and up patron, you have listened to our discussion before. But we will have something new for you at the end of the month in terms of Nagata Kabi discussion. Because we will be talking with Erica about her follow-up manga, My Alcoholic Estate for Reality, as our June patron bonus pod for the $5 tier. But we wanted to release this episode a year after we posted it on the Patreon as a special treat for our regular listeners, and because we have a new Nagata Copy Podcast coming soon for our patrons, we want you to keep your eyes and ears out for
0: Yeah, Yeah, Um. So, as it is with our bonus podcasts on our Patreon in particular, we always upload those uh, by the end of the month, every month, and um, so... Uh, I guess outside of that, we we do have a lot of Patreon stuff to talk about because, uh, you know, not only do we want to shout out a new patron, but, you know, uh, with this episode of the podcast technically coming from our Patreon, I I at least personally wanted to kind of take the time to kind of talk about our Patreon a little bit just because, uh, you know, if you happen to be listening to this episode and you're not a patron, you know, we, we talk about it every episode, but very rarely do we kind of like go over every tier on our Patreon. And I know that probably sounds kind of tedious, but, you know, if you happen to be listening to this and, like, you know, maybe you're interested in our Patreon, but just haven't, like, really kind of had the time to, like, kind of take a look into it, we're going to just kind of explain a few things here today before we kind of get on to uh, the rest of our show. Um, So I guess just kind of starting from the beginning here, at our first tier on our Patreon, at the $1 tier, you know, basically that's our lowest tier for you guys to be able to support us if you just want to chip in something. You know, a chip and a little support our way. Uh, Obviously, at any tier on the Patreon, no matter what you uh, decide to donate to us, uh, we will send you a thank you message and uh, shout you out on the next episode of the podcast that we have to record after you become a patron, Uh, just like our newest patron, Sam Leach, who is uh, not only a new patron of ours, but is also in general just a friend of the podcast and someone we also had on the show recently recently. As far as our Patreon goes on our uh, Speed Racer live action movie discussion, where we talked about the 2008 live action movie from the Wachowski siblings, as kind of a a continuation of our Speed Racer discussion from, uh, from our manga episode of the manga Mavericks uh, proper. Uh, If you haven't listened to either of those, please go listen to those. I had a lot of fun recording both of those. But... Uh, kind of jump ahead. The, the Speed Racer podcast, the uh, the live action movie podcast in particular, is another one of our uh, bonus patron podcasts that you'll get access to uh, when you sign up for a certain tier on our Patreon. But uh, not to get too far ahead here, uh, we do want to thank Sam for uh, showing us some support. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, at really any tier on the Patreon, you'll be guaranteed a shout out on the show again the next time we have to record a podcast. So. Uh, it's our way of uh, of showing our undying gratitude to our patrons for supporting us. So again, thank you so much for doing that. But if you actually, you know, want more stuff on our two dollar tier, that's the tier basically where you'll get uh, select access to early editions of our podcast. Specifically, you know,, uh, we have a lot of these podcasts, or at least we try to have a lot of these edited kind of ahead of time. Um, and if we happen to have certain discussions edited ahead of time, before we put them up on our main feed. Uh, We try to put them up on our Patreon first. Uh, It really depends on our schedules and whatnot, but basically, whatever we do have edited early, we try to put it up on our Patreon for you guys to listen to first. So it's really the best way for you guys to listen to at least most, if not some, of our podcasts first. And uh, yeah, that's at the $2 tier. At $3, uh, it's kind of a special tier because... uh, Specifically, that tier we're kind of dedicating for now to uploading the newest episodes of a kind of a side podcast that I'm doing with my friend, uh, our good friend Sakaki, uh, called Another Day, Another Adventure, which is a Dragon Ball podcast uh, kind of going through, attempting to go through the entirety of the animated franchise right now. We are going through the first Dragon Ball anime from 1986. It's been a lot of fun recording. I have a lot of like big plans for that show that I really can't wait to uh, get on. And I've, I've just been enjoying recording the show a lot just in general. It's It's been fun. But at the $3 tier, because eventually we're going to be starting a, a kind of a public feed for that show pretty soon... But kind of for now, uh, kind of the way this is going to work is that uh, at the $3 tier, if you're interested in that podcast at all, and you start listening to it, and you're like, oh, man, I've caught up on everything that's out. Well, guess what? The five newest episodes of that podcast are always going to be available on our Patreon, uh, kind of exclusively up until we can uh, basically upload them to our public feed. Basically, whenever I upload a new episode of that podcast on our Patreon, uh, the oldest episode that is not on our public feed yet will go out on that public feed. That's kind of a, uh, what I'm attempting to do with this podcast. So, yeah, again, if you want to, if you want to listen to the newest episodes of that podcast, uh, those will be up on our Patreon first. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, along with all that, you know, we also have like a bunch of like unreleased podcasts and stuff, as well as like a bunch of bloopers and everything that we've kind of uploaded to the Patreon as well. So, just more extra stuff for you guys to enjoy. But really, I think probably one of our biggest tiers is our $5 tier, which we have mentioned where at the end of every month, uh, you'll receive at least one bonus podcast in the end of every month. And uh, I've recently done the math, like, you know, I don't know if this is like clear to everyone, but you know, when you sign up for that tier, not only do you get access to a new podcast every month, you'll have access to like our backlog of bonus podcasts that we've been uploading for, I think, two years at this point
1: hmm We have been doing the Patreon for two years now, so you have about 24 bonus podcasts waiting for you.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, I've done the math recently, and uh, I think it's been a while since, because I originally thought we only had about, like, 20 hours worth of, like, content, but no, we have, like, closer to 39. Um. So, yeah, 39 plus hours of, like, uh, of extra podcast content that uh, is not up on our uh, public feed uh, that you will get access to when you sign up for our Patreon at the $5 tier. And, you know, we've already mentioned, like, a few podcasts that uh, we've done in the past, again, like our live-action Speed Racer movie discussion and, uh, you know, the podcast that we're uploading right now with our solo exchange diary discussion with Erica that was originally a bonus podcast from a year ago when we posted it. Um, if, if you're interested in in more podcasts like this... Uh, I would like to uh, point you to our other bonus podcast that we recorded with our good friend, Maxie Bernard, a French of Friendship ever victory, where we kind of did a follow up on uh, my brother's husband in particular, which uh, we did talk about on the podcast proper a few years back when it, when the first volume came out. Uh, but as soon as the rest of it came out, uh, we tried to find the time to talk about the rest of it. And we did, and it was a fun discussion. And so if you want kind of another LGBTQ kind of uh, focused podcast, uh, focusing on another series of that ilk, you know, you can go listen to that, um, and yeah, I mean, just in general, we have so much for uh, so much for you guys to listen to in the future. I think we're kind of planning on uh, being a mix of like one-off podcast, uh, different like uh, mini series, like watch through, read through kinds of, kinds of things. Uh, I've been really enjoying doing the uh, the Manga Mavericks book club read throughs. Uh, where right now we are covering the Saint Seiya manga, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masumi Kurumada. I'm specifically going through my first read-through of it, along with my good friend, Doctor, from the Ask Backwards Enemy Podcasting Network. Uh, we're getting pretty close to finishing that read-through, and eventually I am going to start up a new read-through. I don't want to say which one that is yet. I kind of want to keep that under wraps, but uh, just rest assured we are going to start up a new read-through, and hopefully eventually in the future... Uh, I do want to start up a uh, kind of a watch-through series called the Manga Mavericks Anime Club, uh, where I could just say this here because I've said it before. Uh, we are going to go through uh, Hajime no Ippo because it is my first time going through that series in particular. And uh, I'm already kind of in the talks with like getting a few guests on for that watch-through in particular that are very excited to come on. i um, still kind of in the planning stages of that, but hopefully that'll start up. If not by the end of this year, hopefully early next year. That's kind of what we're shooting for, but... Yeah. Um, again, if you're, you know, if you're already interested in what we have to offer at our $5 tier in particular, I promise you that uh, we are ramping up and trying to plan out a lot of really cool things to to also kind of give it a variety. And because uh, this is just me kind of pulling the curtain back here a little bit. Uh, personally, as much as I've been really enjoying doing the Mago Marics Book Club, I do kind of want to vary up our bonus podcast a little bit. That way, we're not just uploading the same thing every month. Uh, That's kind of what I'm trying to do in case, you know, somebody might not be interested in uh, us going through just one series all the time. Uh, I do want to kind of spice things up a little bit and go through like a few things at a time, upload other like different one off reviews that we're kind of interested in. We have a few uh, possibly ideas about like maybe going over like some movies and stuff in the future uh, that we've kind of like talking about in the background here. Uh, Just a whole bunch of stuff that we want to do for that tier in particular, just to kind of keep things interesting. Uh, that's basically kind of where, like, you'll get the most content out of every tier, honestly. I mean, I guess, uh... We do have one more tier that we want to talk about. Uh, Lum, do you want to talk about that one real quick?
1: The $25 tier, in which if you pledge at that tier for about six months, you will be able to produce an episode of the Munger's podcast on a topic of your choosing. Basically, if there's anything you want us to talk about on the show, you can subscribe to that tier. And after six months period, you will be able to get us to make an episode on the manga anime whatever of your choice and we have actually had a patron request of that nature we've covered before and that is tokyo revengers that was a patron request from someone at that tier and we have indeed recorded that episode and that'll be coming out to you in july so if you also want us to talk about a cool series that you've been interested in us talking about and want to expedite that and help uh, us produce it along the way. Definitely support us at that $25 tier.
0: Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um, yeah, basically, you know, like Lum just said, that will be your tier for, you know, if you really, really desperately want us to talk about something, you know, near and dear to your heart, you know, whether it be like a series you love or, you know, whatever topic you're like, uh, you know, uh, passionate about. You know, uh, whatever you want us to talk about, obviously, within reason, that goes without saying, uh, we will we will do it. Um, We do have a limit on that tier for about four people maximum. Uh, So, yeah, there's there's still some empty spaces if you want to uh, join up for that tier. Um, But really, the point we're trying to get across with the Patreon is that whatever tier you decide to join up for or whatever tier you can support us at, um, we really appreciate it. None the same. Uh, and we really want to try to be as dedicated as possible to try to give you guys as much extra content as we uh, feasibly humanly can, just to show you guys that we really appreciate your support. And once again, you know, thank you to everybody who has like supported us on Patreon. It really does kind of touch me that there are, that there's anybody out there who like actually likes our podcast that much that that would actually want to support us. It makes me it ma- it makes us feel great. It makes us feel great about what we do, so.
1: Absolutely. Thank you all so much for your support.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, uh, I don't even think we've said the link. That's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks where you can find all that stuff. And, uh, again, you know, if you if you happen to like this episode of the podcast and you're like, oh, man, I want to listen to more of what they have on, our pa- uh, on their Patreon, again, you go to patreon.com slash manga mavericks where you can find more stuff like this. Um and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's about it for the Patreon spiel out of the way. Um, in, admittedly, uh, we try not to spend, like, a lot of time promoting our Patreon because I don't want to, like, turn anybody off or anything. But we figured for this podcast in particular, we did kind of want to go through, like, what our Patreon has to offer because this this is, this is I guess, in a way you can kind of sort of call this an advertisement for our Patreon, the fact that we are uploading a, uh, a bonus podcast from our Patreon, you know, to kind of have people listen to so there you go
1: it's also just good timing because kabi recently appeared on a tcaf live stream panel and of course my alcoholic escape from reality is out so we thought it was good timing to release this podcast publicly and we always had intended to do that after a certain period of time and especially since we'll be recording that alcoholic escape from reality podcast for the patreon later this month like the cars are right to release it at this time, especially because we definitely have plans to do a lot of podcasts on LGBTQ manga this summer. And Nakata, uh, copies work, is definitely on the forefront of LGBTQ manga to talk about.
0: No, yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of reasons we wanted to do this podcast in particular, but um, even before we kind of like get onto to that discussion, um, we do have at least some news to talk about some news that I think is pretty important to talk about considering, uh, the, the newest Oricon sort of yearly sales ranking for 2021, the first half of 2021, uh, has been released, and, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to kind of go over here, um, that I think I'm just going to get to now. Boy, you know, I'm sorry, just looking at this list, like, there's so many, like, change-ups already, uh, compared to even, like, six months ago. It's kind of insane. Uh, The the first big one uh, that we have to talk about right off the bat is at uh, number 10 at the bottom of the list is uh, One Piece with roughly two and a half million copies sold over the past six months.
1: One Piece is number 10. So that goes to show you something. It is quite insane that One Piece is not... Not only not the number one spot, it's not in the top three, it's not in the top five. It is right down there at number ten. Kind of borderline out of the top ten. Like that goes to show you that wow, there are a lot of series recently that have a huge uptick in sales of popularity. Now it does it is worth mentioning that there's only been one volume of One Piece released this year so far. So you gotta take that into account of like why, you know, it, the sales aren't higher than this at this point, but it's even so, it does go to show, like, even at these numbers, like, especially because think about everything going up from here, like, and what is number one and how much more sales comparatively it has in the same six month period. Like, it is quite astonishing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I don't think One Piece has ever been this low on this list in particular.
1: Not in Oricon's history, I don't think.
0: No. That. Yeah. That's 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 like that's that's like such a shakeup, considering you know, uh, One Piece, you know, at its peak was selling so much, and now I mean, not to give it too much away, but Demon Slayer is pretty much like kind of taking over that position.
1: Yeah. Though there are some other contenders that we are also talk about that uh, I think could probably unseat demon slayer at the end of the year rankings but we'll get to that as we go up the list
0: yeah i mean this next uh this next kind of title on the list is also surprising considering uh this title is usually a lot higher on the list as well with kingdom selling about roughly two and a half million copies as well over the past six months kingdom in particular is usually like top three easy but uh yeah, I mean, com- compared to, like, si- again, six months ago when it was number two all the way down at, uh, you know, number nine. I mean, I think just that just goes to show, like, how much better the other series are doing compared to it. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, let's just talk about how the floor of this sales chart is, like, 2.5 million copies. I mean, if you want to compare it to last year's half-year check-in for 2020, the floor of that was, like, 1.7 million copies. But also, like, the range of that, like, between, you know, number one as Demon Slayer was such an outlier, but the range of that was 1.7 million at number 10 to at number 2, 4.8 billion last year. And now, I will talk about as we go up the range, but, like, it really is showing that even if, like, the peak sales of the number one Demon Slayer is, like, half as much as what it was last year, like, the entire industry has still risen in that the average sales of everything else has like just increased so the floors of the bottom 10 sales have increased so much
0: mm-hmm. i'm sure that has to do with like you know how much people are like buying manga during like the pandemic and everything
1: oh yeah i mean, we'll talk about when we talk about some north american sales in a little bit as well but uh i think that we're definitely seeing a huge manga boom not just in japan but internationally
0: uh, next up on the list at number eight, we have Haiku selling about uh, roughly two million nine hundred thousand copies. But yeah, Haiku another really big seller. I remember when that ended, and uh, the 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 sales for that pretty much spiked uh, all the way to its placement at like number four in the in the very last list we had about six months ago as well.
1: It's interesting comparing with the half year check in from last year that this is about the same amount it sold halfway into 2020s as well, 2.9 million copies. So Haikyuu, even though it's ended, has kind of stayed the course in terms of sales.
0: Mm-hmm. I would be interested in seeing if Q is still in this list at the end of the year, considering, you know, it's it's still very popular. And I'm sure that, like, I don't know about this year, but I'm sure eventually, like, we'll get more anime for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Like, I I, I can't imagine that Q is done making money, you know? hmm Uh, But at number seven, we have My Hero Academia with just a little over three million copies sold over the past six months. Uh, Six months ago, it was uh, just a spot lower at number eight. And about a year ago, it was uh, number five. So still doing pretty good. Always about around like the middle of the top ten ish, I would say, usually.
1: Yeah, I would say this is pretty expected for MHA
0: hmm It's so interesting to see, like, I mean, th- this is not me saying, like, oh, because My Hero Academia is lower on this list, that it's not as popular as it is in North America. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it is interesting to see, like, which series in Japan have just are still more popular than it, and or I guess I should say, like, uh, how much some of these other series have sold more than it over in Japan, where it's like... Where it's like obviously in North America over here, it's arguably like the highest selling thing over here in North America. It's just just the difference is interesting to see.
1: It is worth noting as well that these sales are still higher than in North America. Like MJ still sells more copies in Japan than it does in North America. Even though it might be like relatively, like if you were to rank sales in North America, closer to the top of the list than it is here. It's still middle of the list and honestly, like it is slightly lower than where it was at this time last year, but it's it's about in the same range. Like last year, that's 3.3 million, so, you know, it's not that much of a
0: decrease. Yeah, not, not like a huge change there. Um, speaking about things not changing, uh, Promise Neverland is ranked at the number six spot on this list with, once again, just a little over 3 million copies sold. Again, checking like the last two lists, it's literally it literally has not like changed spots at all. It's consistently been number six.
1: The number of sales is almost exactly the same. It's 3.1 million it had in last year or two. At this time last year. So, yeah, I mean, promise neverland stable popularity, stable sales.
0: Mm-hmm. That is really interesting to me considering like and we've talked about this before, but it is interesting considering like how not very well the last season did how much that was like received by fans.
1: Yeah, I mean, at least over here in our spear in our bubble like maybe in japan people liked it more if nothing else the anime like we said probably did encourage
0: people to check out the manga for the full story i could i could imagine so honestly like i have to imagine there's a good number of people who are like man i didn't like the way that th- that last season ended i wonder if the manga ended better you know <laughs> for, for some people that's arguable. I really can't wait to talk about Promised Neverland on this podcast to really kind of dig into, like, the endings of both, probably. There's 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 a lot we could talk about with the Promised Neverland that I'm sure we will do at some point. That's definitely on, on our bucket list, but uh, I guess just to move on to the number five spot, this is pretty neat. At number five, we have Chainsaw Man with just a little over four million copies sold, and I don't believe it was on the list even six months ago or last year. Not that I can see anyway.
1: No, Chainsaw Man was not on... The half year or the full year check-in for 2020. But it is so interesting that its sales have seen such a spike since the manga ended. It really feels like the manga ended and then that encouraged like a bunch of people to start checking it out and reading it. Which, to be fair, it is such a manageable length at only like 11 volumes that I could definitely see people just like voraciously grab the copies to read it all. It's a very compelling story at a relatively short length for a long-running Shonen series. And there's still that anticipation for more with that part two coming eventually. So I think it's just having a nice little boost, nice little renaissance. Just ahead of when the anime will come out later this fall and I'm sure we'll see sales explode even further.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm pretty convinced that the anime is going to help the manga make even more waves, both in Japan and stateside, I think. Mm -hmm. All right, but at number four, we have Attack on Titan with just a little over four and a half million copies sold. Uh, Attack on Titan, again, interestingly enough, six months ago, all the way at the bottom of the list, but I'm sure, you know, a year ago, just kind of looking at it, I guess a year ago was just a little higher, but... uh. I mean I'm sure uh its placement on this list in particular with it being as high as it is is probably also due to the fact that the manga just ended and I'm sure there's a you know there's obviously a lot of hype around like this currently final season of the anime I'm sure a lot of that really helps
1: I think the most extraordinary thing, if you look at the sales numbers, is that it sold more in these past six months than it sold in the entirety of 2020, because it sold 4.6 million copies in this first six months of 2020 2021, whereas in 2020, the total amount of copies it sold was 4.3 million. So yeah, that final arc of the manga, like the ending of the series has definitely propulsed its sales even greater heights i mean we could definitely see a double the sales it made in 2020 by the end of this year like i think that combination of that quote-unquote final season of the anime and the of course ending of the manga definitely create a a great moment for it to encourage a lot of sales in such a short period of time
0: Mm -hmm. what's even more surprising we, we got a new challenger coming to the uh, top 10 yearly manga sales with Tokyo Revengers coming in at number three on the list, selling just a little over 5 million copies. Tokyo Revengers, I would say is arguably one of the most impressive showings on this list.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it only has 3 million copies in circulation in February of 2020. And now in this first half of 2021, It has sold 5 million copies just in these past six months. So if you think about how much it has grown, it has grown quite significantly. And it now is like 20 million copies circulation in total. But like, yeah, like a fourth of those copies circulation have definitely, so more than a fourth because obviously we're not thinking about like the sales from previous years. So yeah, I mean, I think that Tokyo Revengers, are seeing a definite Boost thanks to the anime. I think this is a great moment for it. I mean, this is another situation where not only is the anime, you know, very popular, but we're also in the final arc of the manga. And that encourages a lot of people to want to catch up to the series so they can read the final arc, the final chapters as they come out. So I think we're in a good moment for Tokyo Revengers. I think that we'll definitely see the sales of it continue to get boosted up and rise. And so, yeah, I'm very curious to see where it's going to end up at the end of the year.
0: Mm hmm. But yeah, coming to the two biggest titles on the list.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a big gulf between three
0: and two. Yeah, let's just talk about number two here with Jujutsu Kaisen coming in at number two on the list with about roughly 23 and a half million copies sold. Like you said, that is a huge jump. That's quite amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and Jujutsu Kaisen, like we saw that in the year end for 2020, it was doing quite well for itself, but this is a dramatic explosion in sales like it gets sold four times as many copies in the first half of 2021 than it sold the entirety of 2020 like it exploded in popularity and sales thanks to this anime i mean we have reports that the circulation of the manga <laughs> jumped nearly 600 <laughs> percent since the anime Came out. Like, it was 8.5 million copies of circulation in early October, and now it is close to 50 million. So, yeah, the anime did its job. It boosted the series quite significantly. The sales have really exponentially increased. And I do think, I mean, we're going to talk about number one, but the gap between number one and number two is so close that I think that Jujutsu Kaisen, at the end of the year, if it keeps up this momentum, is definitely a cincher for the number one spot.
0: For sales this year. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I totally agree. Like, it it at least has like the best chance of overtaking the number one, which obviously, if if we haven't already said it, I think we already did it earlier. But the number one best selling manga in the first half of 2021 is Demon Slayer: Kimetsu no Yaiba. There's no surprise with that, selling about roughly almost 26 and a half million copies. Almost 3 million copies more than Jujutsu Kaisen sold over the past 6 months. Um, I'm not totally surprised by this. Demon Slayer, once again, like, I don't know. It it is really going to be interesting to see, like, which of these series ends up at the number one spot at the end of this year. Because I genuinely don't know which one is going to end up there.
1: Yeah, because Demon Slayer, of course, has the second season of the anime coming in the fall. So, who knows? That could... Create another resurgence of sales, but like it is just so remarkable. Like, obviously, these sales, if you were to compare with this time last year, are like about half as much as it did in the first half of 2020, because in the first half of 2020, it did like 45 million. But still, for a series that has been over for a year at this point, that has all its volumes out to still be outselling like everything else, to still have sold 26 million copies in a six-month period span is so impressive. And so I would never discount Demon Slayer's chances of still keeping that number one spot, of still maintaining the sales momentum. Like, again, Demon Slayer is just such a culture phenomenon that who knows like what heights it could still continue to reach even though this series is over. But yeah, it's going to be very interesting to look at these year-end results. I will, I, I think we're definitely seeing like a lot of series that are having big spurts, but of course there's like half a year left and who knows what dark courses, what surprises await us in the second half of the year. But yeah, I think that the two to look out for for the number one spot will definitely be Demon Slayer and Jujutsu Kaisen. And I would, I would guess Jujutsu Kaisen just because it's more current, just because we got that movie coming out, Captain Volume Zero. I kind of feel that this year will be GGK's moment but again very sustained momentum from Demon Slayer 2 and again it's such a phenomenon that you know could pull a bunch of surprises and as well you know all these other series we've saw that have like had some big boost in sales like Tokyo Revengers Chainsaw Man you know those could also be just big surprises too
0: mhm honestly like the more i think about it I'm kind of rooting for Jujutsu Kaisen to kind of have its big time in the, uh, in the sun, like with Demon Slayer. I, I could eat, I could see that, you know, being another one of these like huge juggernauts that probably, I, I think, again, like I said, it has the potential out of anything on this list to sell just as much as Demon Slayer, I think. It could happen.
1: Yeah, I think it's very close right now. I'm curious to see like what the gap between them is going to be as the year goes on. I think definitely we're seeing the most momentum from Tokyo Revengers, looking at, like, the May or chart, Tokyo Revengers is definitely at the top, so who knows about Tokyo Revengers, maybe that old, so, like, really see Exponential growth too. that'll bridge the gap between it and the top two here, but, yeah, like, it's gonna be very interesting.
0: If that does happen for Jujutsu Kaisen, it'll be another series that, uh, I've got on record, and, you know, again, I, I didn't really, like, uh... It's not that I disliked the first chapters of Jujutsu Kaisen, but it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know if this is going to last, and wow, was I totally wrong again? Yeah, you bet on Ziga, and look how that (laughs) turned out. (laughs) It's not around anymore. Oh, man. Look, I really, I really wanted, I mean, I guess we have Kaiju number eight now, but like, I really, really wanted a Shonen Jump manga about a Kaiju to really thrive. That's all I really wanted. But again, we have Kaiju number eight now, so... I guess I got my wish, but yeah.
1: And it's at least eight times better, if not more.
0: Oh holy shit. It totally is. Oh man. I really wanted Ziga to be good. Um but yeah, I I think that's about it for the uh the Oricon manga list. And now I think we should talk about uh the, the light novel list.
1: Yeah, the light novel list is interesting because I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of franchise novelizations on this list, as opposed to outright light novel series. So, for example, Sword Art Online, which is kind of the perennial like light novel franchise, like the kind of the emblematic light novel franchise. So you think, what are the highest selling light novel series? You know, you think Sword Art Online. But Sword Art Online is here at number 10, with only about 177,000 copies sold. And so that will go to tell you, huh, like there's some major shakeups here. And indeed there is. We do have a new entry here. Oh, so a comes in at number nine. Wrong cover The Childhood Friend Won't Lose. This has a currently airing anime. It has about 185751 copies sold. So I think we're seeing maybe an anime boost for this one. People checking it out based on the anime and getting interested in it. And so now we're going to talk about like what I just mentioned with these franchise novelization stuff because we got a Jujutsu Kaisen light novel here at number 8. You're walking no over This has about 206,000 copies sold. Then we also have another Jujutsu Kaisen like at number 6 here, Ikunatsu no Pabu. Aki, this has about 235,000 copies sold. We got a Haikyuu novelization sandwich in between them, number seven, with about 225,000 copies sold. And then when we get into top five, we got this Demon Slayer Mugen Train novelization, basically novelization of the movie, and this has 270,000 copies sold. And so, like, right in the middle here, we see, like, these franchise novelizations like real spin-offs related to manga series are really dominating and these are like very obviously popular manga franchises so it makes sense but we do have some uh, like out titles that have stayed the course and have kind of beaten the pack of these novelizations and these include re 0 which has 301,000 copies sold apothecary diaries with 350,000 Copy sold in number three. And then number two is that time I got reincarnated as a slime. 357,000 copies sold. Obviously, Slime and ReZero had recent anime seasons that I think probably helped them. Apocalypse, I think it's just become a very renowned, very uh, looked forward to title. This was number five on the year end list. So it's kind of stayed the course in terms of sales here and yeah i mean it's going to be interesting to see i i don't remember if an uh, anime has been announced for this if it'll be coming in an or anything but uh i think this is definitely a series to look out for this has been released over here in north america by jayneville club already so definitely one to check out if you're a light down mm-hmm. fan because this looks like to be one of the next big titles but of course number one we kind of almost uh, double the sales of the number two, is uh, the Demon Slayer Comitiniana novelization, with 650,000 copies sold. So, once again, on the light novel charts, Demon Slayer dominates it all. <laughs> people want to read Demon Slayer, both as manga and as a light novel. Like, they, they can't get enough.
0: People can't get enough Demon Slayer, and also some people can't get enough of Jujutsu Kaisen. They're, they're taking over the industry.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Oh, boy. I guess speaking of Demon Slayer taking over the industry, uh, do we want to go over the latest book scan list?
1: Indeed. For the second month in a row... The entire Top 20 Adult Graphic Novels chart from Bookscan has been dominated by manga. All 20 books in the Top 20 are manga. And Demon Slayer accounts for the majority of them. 40%, 8 books are Demon Slayer books. Of course, propulsed by the release of Mugen Train and its incredible success, no doubt spurring interest. And I think that definitely can be reflected in the charts itself if you look, because what are the highest selling Demon Slayer volumes on this chart? Well, at number two here, we got Demon Slayer Volume 8, which, wouldn't you know it, is the end of the Mugen Train arc. It has Goku on the cover. <laughs> uh, again, the Mugen Train film like, definitely encourages a lot of people to check out the manga version of that arc and know that seeing Goku on the cover. are like, oh... This is the manga version of that film. I gotta get it. So that is number two here. But also at number three, we have volume nine. And at number four, we have volume ten. So people are continuing to read on past Move and Train into the Entertainment District arc. And so those have seen strong sales. As well as volume eleven coming in at number ten. Now interestingly, volume three is up here at number eleven. And it's interesting because volume three is here, but volume two is not. But, Volume 3 is selling pretty well at number 11. Number 13, we've got Volume 1, so people continuing to discourage the in the series. While at volume 7 comes in at number 14, so again, first half of the moving train arc in the manga, people buying that Williams, you got that arc. And, Volume 12, again, one of the art volumes of the Entertainment District, comes in at number 15. And that does it for Demon Slayer volumes on the list. But we also, of course, got to talk about MHA because MHA kind of slightly rebounded, slightly regained some space in Demon Slayer compared to last month's chart because it's up from three volumes representation to four volumes representation. And it's basically the first two and last two volumes are on this chart because volume one is at number five. And then we got volume 27, the most recent volume, at number eight. Then we've got Volume 2 and number 18 and Volume 26 and number 20. Like I said, first two volumes, most recent two volumes, MHA is selling pretty well for the month of May, but there are other franchises to talk about. One interesting thing about this list is that there are a lot of Volume 1s that are selling pretty well, so it definitely points towards a trend of a lot of people sampling, trying out new titles, including some backlot titles, some older titles, as we'll talk about, but we also gotta talk about the fact that Attack on Titan is still continuing to do quite well, cause it's got two volumes on the list, including its most recent volume, Volume 33, ranking at number one at the top of the list, and its first volume, ranking at number six. So people getting into Attack on Titan, and people keeping up with Attack on Titan. Definitely has sustained a lot of popularity. Also, no doubt, thanks to, you know, the, the anime being quite successful, that final season, endearing a lot of hype. But we also got, again, like a lot of interesting Volume 1s of other series on the list. We got Spy Family Volume 1 coming in at number 7. We got Tokyo Ghoul Volume 1 coming in at number 9. got Hanako-kun Volume 1 coming in at number 12. got Komi-Can't-Communicate Volume 1 coming in at number 16. Interestingly, we see Hunter Hunter enter this list for the first time I think we have ever seen it enter the book scan list. And that comes in at number 17. So... That's quite interesting. People are getting into Hunter Hunter. So, very cool. I, I'm surprised we don't see any Berserk, but I, I guess considering the sales period, it makes sense why we did not see. But I think that in the next sales period that WixFan reports on for maybe the June list, we might see some Berserk
0: on this list. Oh, I have no doubt in my mind, yeah.
1: Yeah, because, I, I mean, we know that Berserk has been selling out on every retailer, Amazon, right stuff you mean, but people are buying up Berserk. So I think we're definitely going to see Williams of Berserk on our next looks-hand list we report on. But for this list, like, it's another Viz Media-dominated list, another list pretty dominated by Demon Slayer and MHA. But there are some interesting, again, like, to titles, one-off titles, volume ones, uh, that show that people are trying out some new series, people are checking in to some new series, and there are some definitely some mainstay favorites that have continued to stick around and do to attract interest.
0: So it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm, for sure. But uh yeah, no, I'm I'm not sure if I'm really I guess I'm I'm both surprised and not surprised that like manga is once again like just dominating the sales list completely um i'm really interested in like how much longer this will keep up there has been a lot of discussion i think we've brought it up on the show before about like people wondering like whether this is just kind of like a temporary boom or like uh like how long this will like sustain itself and whatever but i don't know i could see these sales like really sustaining themselves for a while it'll be interesting to see
1: yeah, I really think we're in a moment of, like, huge popularity of manga. Like, I, this is explosive growth. So we're not usually privy to this information because we just read off the public reports Bookscan puts out and we don't have, like, the paid access for, like, all the by actual numbers for what things have been selling. But I believe Miles does have that. And recently he tweeted... uh this is Miles, Thomas used to work control. Like, he t- recently tweeted that according to Booksan, in April of 2020, you know, top 20 best selling manga in the US sold 53,700 volumes combined. So the top 20 in April 2020 sold like just 53,700 volumes. But in April of 2021, you know, a year later, the top 20 sold collectively 345,000 copies. So, that is seven times growth. Woof. That is an insane amount of growth. That is, like, almost 300,000 copies more that has been sold in a single month compared to this same month, this same time last year. And we really have seen, like, insane increase in demand for manga and anime, but especially manga, we've seen such explosive growth. This is why that all the publishers have been kind of tweeting about it, kind of been saying, yo, we can't keep up with demand like uh, printers are at full capacity. This is why things are taking so long to sell out, so long to get to shelves, so long to get reprinted, restocked. This is why like the wait times on these titles are so long. Like I saw recently that I think there was an Amazon listing for Demon Slayer Volume One. And it's like it's not going to be restocked for like months or something. Like it's what? crazy. Like. These series manga is just selling out like crazy over here. We're seeing just such insane, bro. It's such an insane boom. I think we really did see a lot of people like get into manga, the big way things, and, and no doubt encouraged by a lot of really high key and uh, popular titles that broke it big in the mainstream last year.
0: Yeah, it's um, I don't want to say it's weird because I don't want to uh, I don't want to make it sound like a negative thing or whatever. It's it, it's it's weird in the sense like. I feel like when we started this show, manga was doing pretty well, but, like, I don't remember it being this big. It's just it's just really interesting to see, like, how far we've come, like, since we've started this show.
1: Yeah. It's still interesting, though, like, with this explosion, like, just to relatively compare it to the Japanese industry, like, the manga sales in the U.S. are still, like, kind of tiddling compared to like Japanese manga sales like Japanese manga sales are on a whole different ballpark because we recently had like a screen rant overview of this media and it was mentioned in the article that My Hero Academia in North America has about 9 million copies in circulation while Demon Slayer has 4 million copies in circulation and just think about we just talked about this year's Oricon list like for the half year. Like demon Slayer like has so much less hobbies in circulation, much less sold than in japan my year academia has so much less copies in circulation compared to even sold than in japan you know like it's, it's still crazy that like the market is still much smaller for manga in north america compared to japan but we are seeing it grow really really a lot so like i think these numbers will just continue to increase it, it will continue to be interesting to see like how manga spurs the growth of the graphic novel industry in general in North America, because like it's definitely leading the charge there. And yeah, I'm, I'm just very curious to see manga continue to grow in such an explosive way this year and hopefully beyond.
0: Oh, yeah. Just want to mention this real quick, also from the Screen Rant article that uh, as far as My Hero Academia goes, there are also one million copies of print of just volume one. alone. yeah.
1: I mean, that also goes to show you that, like, then $8 billion for the remaining 26. So, you know, like, Volume 1, it seems to be doing really, really well, but, like, yeah, that just shows you there's a lot of catching up to do to get to the place where Japan is at, and I don't know if, like, we'll ever get there, but uh it, it is still very impressive, like, to see, like, these are, like, the h- highest demand series, and we're seeing, like, hey, My Hero Academia has a million copies of print. That is nothing to seize that. Like, that means, like, a million, the potential for a million people to own a copy of Volume 1 is there, which is... Pretty insane what you think about. That's a lot of people still.
0: I'm kinda surprised that one million people don't just own my Hero Academia Volume 1 at this point, though. That's th- that's kind of that kind of feels like where we should be at, honestly.
1: Yeah, you think. I mean, it does show you like there's still a lot of growth to go, but
0: yeah, yeah, it's
1: still impressive that we're we've gotten this
0: far and the growth is continuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, in summation, manga is cool now. Manga it's okay to be a manga fan now. Finally. <laughs> Not that it ever wasn't. I'm just <laughs> obviously I'm being facetious, but it's uh, I, I I don't want to just keep saying the same thing. It, it, it's cool, and I'm it, it makes us very happy. Absolutely. As as manga fans ourselves, you know. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's about it for our news. Um, and I think uh, I think for now we're gonna transition into our discussion of Solo Exchange Diary with our good friend Erica Friedman.
1: Absolutely. Let's. Not write down our talks. Let's just
0: discuss them. Let's talk about them out loud.
1: Podcasts are sort of an audio diary, aren't they? Where we exchange thoughts with each other about things we're thinking about, stuff we like and want to have conversations about. Well, today we are going to exchange thoughts on Nagata Kavi's, My Solo Exchange Diary, but we are not doing it alone. We are joined by returning guest Erica Friedman, founder of Yurikon and Akasu.
2: Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me again. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Thank you so much for coming on.
2: It's always a pleasure. Every time. I just love talking to you
1: guys. Oh, thank you. We love talking to you and we especially wanted to talk to you about My Soul Exchange Diary because I think that you've really contextualized, like, Kabi's place in terms of graphic medicine manga and kind of essay manga in general, and I really enjoyed your article from earlier this year that explored that, so I really wanted to get more of your context and insight as we revisit the series. We previously uh, covered Lesbian Experience with Loneliness back when it came out in 2017 over here in the U.S. And that was a really great summer for LGBTQ manga because uh, my Lesbian Experience with Loneliness and my brother's husband both came out at the same time. And I feel like they really made a lot of waves and kind of... Broadened, like, people's awareness and accessibility of LGBTQ manga. And so now you're getting even more works about queer stories over here, like Our Dreams at Dusk. And I think that's an awesome trend. Yeah. But Kabi's manga is also really stand out in particular in the ways that it explores her own mental health and her struggles with it. And you know, just speaking personally as someone who has also struggled with a lot of the same problems that Kavi has, it is really cathartic in a sense, but also illuminating to see someone articulate kind of their own struggles and be so brave and just honest about themselves. And I really resonated to Lesbian Experience when it came out and Solo Exchange Diary. We'll talk about it, but It goes into even more difficult places, but because, especially in manga, and essay manga in particular... We don't really get a lot of these over here in the West, at least. Like, these kind of stories, these kind of essay manga. Like, it feels like something, like, really special. Something, like, I just rarely see. But I think that we are seeing more of.
2: Well, I want to say, though, one of the things that, in all the years that I've been dealing with manga, is that the manga reading audience doesn't tend to read American comics as much as they probably should. And you just said something really key. You said, oh, we don't get that here. Actually... Totally untrue. We get that a lot. We have a strong in the U.S. in the West. There is a massive, huge body of literature that is uh, autobiographical. It's mostly independent. It's not tends to be. It's not Marvel, DC. It's not mainstream. But you have people like, and I'm going to say her name a thousand times at every podcast I ever say. was just Rainbow Telgemeier, because she has literally done that for tweens. She is doing the exact same thing on a massive, huge, monstrously, largely relatable and profitable scale with guts, with smile, with sisters, with all these things where she's doing exactly the same drama. All the things she's doing are exactly the same thing. They're, they're real stories, but they're narrative versions of real stories and their are stories uh Gut's is her I think her most recent I think there's one more coming out or has come out um and it's literally about her her stomach problems her her digestive problems and and so it's actually untrue and I don't mean this to be um a slapping you down but I want the no, not at all. your listening audience to understand there is a massive body of autobiographical work by comic artists that that explore in unrelenting depths their mental unwellness what is going to be true in every form of comics in the world is that those are largely adult male versions of those stories where you've got something like blankets of a young uh, it's an adult male talking about his personal buildings and his discovery of sex and his feeling unattached to the world and gosh that we've never had that story before and I don't mean to be incredibly dismissive but uh, um there's tons of that. I mean, massive amounts of that. And that is true in comics and has always been true true of uh, Western comics as well. What happens is when you have a manga reading audience, they sort of start in the Shonen Jump phase, you know, where it's like adventure and ninjas and
3: pirates. And, <laughs>
2: and then they go, "Well, I'm looking for something deeper. It's like everybody goes through the same narrative for themselves. Like I'm starting with the fantasy and I'm, but then I want something, you know deeper and realer and they find things like you know no longer human and they're like yes this
3: is so <laughs> deep and real
2: and then they go you know what I really want is something about me
1: yes this is the real something shit right. <laughs> right. Oh, something gosh. really
2: deep you know um, <laughs> and they all do this so, so everybody's got the same thing but what happened with Kame work is she started she was an illustrator she was a, a manga artist she wanted to be a professional manga artist and had jobs but then she did this thing and she came out on Pixiv, right? And she did a diary on Pixiv because nobody read Pixiv. Pixiv was just a thing. It was a like the DeviantArt when it first started. It was like, yeah, you put your own stuff up. And people loved it because, like you, they resonated to this idea where they were just admitting that the boundaries that had been set for them are not, they didn't fit into them at all. And just got millions of people liking them. And honestly, when I first read it, I really thought it was a brilliant book, but I didn't actually enjoy it. Uh, I had gone through a lot of my who am I, where do I fit in things a long time ago, and my specific mental health issues are these specific mental health issues, and I think everybody I know has something. My anxiety is not this anxiety, you know, that kind of thing. And so I thought, well, who the hell is going to want to read this story? And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I, I've never been wronger in my life, you know? And I'm okay with that. It's, it's, it's good. It's a good thing that uh, people have found it so relatable and so um, approachable.
0: I mean, Lesbian Experience, I'm pretty sure, is one of Seven C's bestselling, if not their bestselling title.
2: Yeah, it's it's a massive hit. It was a massive hit worldwide. And I actually think when I started to read my solo exchange diary, that could not have actually helped in any way. <laughs> mm-hmm. When you start thinking about if you're suffering from crushing chronic depression, being all of a sudden super famous globally is not actually going to make anything better.
0: hmm Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And we see Kabi struggle with that in the book itself. She talks about when My Lesbian Experience came out in Japan and she went on Twitter and she saw all the positive reactions. Like, she sort of developed kind of an unhealthy relationship with that attention, where she would look up herself and, like, read, like, the watch thread about her, and that would kind of mess with her and, like how she thought she should be writing the story. But also she realized that he was getting all this positive attention and this beautiful illustration of like this light coming in from outside her window. But like we see her still in her bed and that knife is still on her back bleeding because she's still like hurt by what her family thought of it and like not getting validation from them.
2: And even, even if she, once she finally made peace with that, it's not, I think the biggest problem here is that there's not going to be a fix. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everybody really wants her to be happy and healthy and well and together. And that is probably unlikely to actually happen. This is a woman. uh, I've said this about depression for many years, um, that depression is not, it's the chemical cocktail in your brain out of whack. You can't do a thing, you know. Everybody has stories about don't tell people who are depressed. Oh, you know, just buck up and do uh, exercise or eat better or whatever. Like that's not going to fix it. There's some people respond to medication fixing the chemical cocktail, which actually happened with with me. I was in a chronic depression. Well, I was on. I was in. I am chronically uh, seasonally depressed, but I had a, a very deep depression, and luckily for me, medication worked. And it worked very quickly. And yay, that's great. So I only have to deal with my regular seasonal depression. A real genuine chronic depression may respond to some extent to treatment, but it also may never go away. And and by the time we get to the fourth book in the series, um, I think we kind of have to admit that this is not a person who's going to find wholeness in the way that we sort of naturally define it. And And this is working within this space is her life
1: she won't find a very clean happiness it's going to be a constant struggle dealing with this depression
2: i think that it's it's and there's an interesting word it's definitely a struggle obviously i'm not i'm not going to minimize that but to some extent it's the life she's going to be have to, having to live you know and i don't want to i don't want to, anything i'm saying is not minimizing any of it uh and i completely uh, understand that that i i know people who have worked within limitations like this their whole lives and i i try i'm trying to do a lot of what she's doing which is sort of let's not talk about it as some sort of other thing we there's everybody is in has something to some extent or mostly everybody and then there's all these people who don't realize that their friends around them who they're sitting there having a good time with may actually also be depressed at that point You know, and so, so it's, it's like any other DZ. The person sitting next to you might have heart disease. The person sitting next to you might have mental disease. The person sitting next to you might have a disability you're unaware of. Like all of that are things that are true. And I think that's a really important thing that this book kind of opens that door to.
1: Yeah. We all have to just try our best to cope and live the best lives that we possibly can.
2: Right. And, you know, obviously there are societies, parts of this society that are better for them than others. And, uh you know, she's lucky that she's in a country that has nationalized health care. And it's that yeah. part, at least, is not a struggle. And obviously people with the exact same situation here in the U.S. would be in a much, much different place. You know, and that's that's something to recognize as well.
1: And at least... So far from what she has written in her story, she seems to have encountered some very helpful doctors and medical professionals who, who are able to give her a guiding hand in the right moments. So that's also a great thing, too.
2: And also her editor, I want I, I, I. think one of the most touching scenes in all of it is, is the conversation she had with her editor at the end of uh, My Soul exchange, exchange Diary when she was worrying about giving so much of herself up or not giving enough. And the editor said, you know, it's not your job to give all of yourself, but you can feel comfortable giving as much as yourself as you're comfortable with. And, and it was, I felt very touching of an editor too, to say, you know, you set that boundary and it's okay. Whatever boundary you set is fine.
1: This is just one part of your life and only the future can reveal whether it's right or not. I think that is a really beautiful sentiment. I, I do. I thought, I thought it was really lovely. I think it also speaks to another special quality of Solo Exchange Diary is that Kabi is writing it, like, as a diary, like, as these experiences were happening to her, and I do think that's a really special thing in... Uh, an essay comic because a lot of you know autobiographical comics are written with the past in retrospect with like the experiences having happened and there being a lot of distance between the events and when the author is writing about them and even lesbian experience where that story started she was writing about things that happened to her a couple years ago before she started writing it. And with Soul Exchange Diary, she's writing about stuff that is incredibly recent to when she is, you know, drawing these comics. And then you can see like in real time, like how some of her thoughts changed and like her feelings about her family especially change, like over the course of these two volumes from where she starts out and then from where she goes. I think that's another really interesting quality about the book, just because there isn't like a tight narrative in terms of like, oh, like the structure of this is that there's a, you know, clear beginning, middle and end to this story that the author is weaving us through these experiences. But like, this is just a series of Kabi writing about what is happening in her life. So, like, there is no real way to structure it or end it. Because even she doesn't know what is going to happen next in her future. So, I do really love how, like, every chapter ends with copy just writing to her future self. Like, future copy, like, where are you now? What are you doing? Don't forget about this thing that I've just realized about myself.
3: Right.
2: There's a real poignancy there, you know? No, there's awareness that you, that she doesn't
1: really know what's going to be. Mm-hmm. But it also is really interesting to read the story and then look back in retrospect at some things that Kavi chooses to focus on and then some of the things that she kind of lets slip that she doesn't really pay a lot of attention to but you realize is actually a really big deal that probably should have been addressed and talked about more. Especially with her problems with alcohol – there are several points in the manga where she notes that, oh, I was feeling a little anxious here, so I took a couple of drinks. I think in particular, you know, when she's going on her first date and she's kind of nervous, she asks to stop by a convenience store and get a drink. And then she had more drinks over the course of that night. And this happens again when she's on another outing with her friend. And knowing her problems with alcohol and where that would lead to, you kind of realize, oh, the signs of this were already here. And she was writing this here, even if she wasn't consciously aware that she had maybe some issues with alcohol and alcohol as a kind of coping mechanism for dealing with this anxiety.
2: It's self-medication, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to become even more of an issue in the, the fourth book. Or it has become more of an issue in a fourth book when she deals, she's in the hospital for alcoholic pancreatitis. So it, it does come to roost, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and, and it's, it's not something, you know, we're not sitting there going, aha, you know, yay. It's, it's a thing like, oh, look, there's consequences to everything. And, uh, and she has to deal with that now and then has to deal with the relationship she has to, you know the self-medication thing but also her own her own needs for pleasure and uh relaxation and things so it's going to be when you read the fourth book uh my alcoholics Hel- alcoholics escape from reality is what it's going to be when it comes out in english it's going to be a very interesting ride because it's much less about her depression Which is not, not there. It's always there as a thing, as a character, as a, as a influence. But it's really about her relationship to her physical body. And it's very about her physical body. I mean, we get really detailed stuff like her enzyme counts. Mm, Wow. In her pancreas. I mean, like, it's really detailed because this is what she's thinking about from day to day. She's literally dealing with like, you know, going to the doctor and getting blood tests and, and this other stuff. And, and, and the, the, Way to find pleasure and joy in a world where she can't do the things that she thought she was enjoying already. It's an interesting book and a lot different than the others in the sense that it's still about her mental well-being, but her physical well-being is actually more important in this particular case and trying to pull herself back from a brink. And that's a physical crisis more than a mental one.
1: That's really interesting to hear about. She sort of talks about bodily problems in Soul Exchange Diary, but to hear such a clear focus to her discussing her problems with her body in more medical terms is really interesting. And I wonder if that shift is also why the aesthetic may have shifted too, with the brownish color palette instead of the pink that uh, she uses. So
2: also, there's an issue with publishers, and this is fascinating to me because she started. Abislam Pixiv, and she was picked up by a company called East Press. East Press is a very interesting publisher. They're a a smallish publisher, no, they're not huge like uh Shuisha and Shogakukan or anything, or even middle sized like uh Ichijensha or some of the others. Um East Press picks up independent work and licenses it for larger publication, and they've done a lot of LGBTQ stuff. Uh, in fact, almost all of what I've read in Japan initially starts off with East Press. So East Press and Hombuncho, which is what my brother's husband was published by, but that's sort of a separate issue. Um, you have East Presses doing like queer work and queer comic essays and uh, essays about mental health uh, by queer artists and um coming out stories. There's a lot of really good stuff from East Press, and I follow them pretty carefully because they have some really, really good stuff. So Pixiv was picked up, her Pixiv work is picked up by East Press, and she established that pink and white uh, aesthetic. Well, then that book is picked up by a much bigger publisher, right? And I, I joke about this because it's because her work was so... Successful that she and a number of other people finally had Shogaku Khan, the giant massive monster of publishing in, in Japan. Like, I keep thinking of it like a big Godzilla where, like, one eye just kind of looks over to the side. Whoa, you know? <laughs> and it, and it, it sucked her up and became, and sucked up her book. And so she did My Solo Exchange Diary, one and two, with Shogaku Khan. And that kept that pink uh, aesthetic because it was obviously keeping the aesthetic from her original big hit. The thing about Shigaku-kan is it is massive and it is impersonal and it is not flexible and it is not fast and it is not apparently all that fun. Uh, so when she published this, the fourth book, uh, in Japanese, it's Genjutsu Toshitera Boroborinata Nata Hanashi. As I said, it's going to be my alcoholic escape from reality. And when she published that, she's back with East Press. So what obviously happened was whether or not she pitched the shugaku is not really relevant to us. But what is relevant is she decided, let's go back with the smaller publisher, that that doing the story the way she wants and doing the story that she wants the way she wants it is more important to her than the massive publishing. And it may be that shugaku said, yeah, no, it may be. We don't know anything about the background, and I have not even pretended to try to find out. Uh, but we do know that she's back with East Press, which is probably partially why she switched the color scheme.
1: That's really interesting. I wonder if that she went back with East Press also because they gave her more freedom and well, control. Well, we can't to, know.
2: Yeah, we can't know. Yeah. We don't know and we can't know. But, um, but the answer is she's back with East Press. So I kind of think that's a better fit for her anyway. But this way she gets to do what she wants to do and not something else.
1: Mm-hmm. It certainly sounds like it fits in more with what East Press publishes and the kind of stories that they like to put out there. More, you than know, they mentions- actually
2: do a lot of really interesting work in with queer um, creators. I guess is what we're looking for because it's not necessarily the, uh, not necessarily that that's queer work, but it's queer work. It's work from queer creators. So, for instance, they also did. Let me just grab this here clicking or trying to find Otonani Hatatsu shogai Kamoshiranai, which was a story, a manga uh, also a comic essay about mental health, about ADHD by Murshima Akiko whose Conditions of Paradise just came out in English finally. Yay! Um, (laughs) That's only been a a lifetime for me to get that thing out. So, yeah, so her story about dealing as an adult with uh, an adult diagnosis of ADHD also is East Press. So East Press is definitely the publisher that's sitting comfortably in that middle space of, of mental health, physical health, queer narrative, queer creators, and giving them the support that they need to get the stories out that they want to get out. So I'm I'm a hundred percent for East Press.
1: That's awesome. I hope we see that Morishima b- book licensed over here too. I would really love to read that as well.
2: Yeah, I've been trying. I mean, I've, I've talked to every graphic manga publisher there is so far. <laughs> keep <sending> them notes. <laughs> I would say, like all the all the graphic medicine people, I'm like, hey, you would really like this. You should. Really. And people are like, oh, I've never heard of them. I'm like, well, I told you that last year and the year before and the year before. Um, yeah, so I've been trying desperately to get people when people say, oh, yeah, we're looking for more graphic medicine manga. I'm like, here, here's a good one. This is a really great book. You should really totally do this because it was really great.
0: <laughs> I, I just I just imagine Erica coming up with like thirty 35- five. Titles on him.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, occasionally, every once in a blue moon, a, uh, a publisher will say, "Do you know have like, any? Hang on, here.
3: <laughs> here's the list. You
2: know, I like uh, you know, here's the here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the here's the publishers. I know you don't work with these people, but here's this one, and this one, and this one. Here's a brand new one. Here's another one. Yeah. So occasionally, I'm I'm called upon to do that, and very rarely, or anybody does anybody take up my my number one, number twos? But I'd really like to see uh, Marishima Sensei's uh, story come out because it was really a a great story with a really terrific, really hopeful and um, forward-looking end.
1: That's awesome. I guess that's another thing that I appreciate about Kabi's work, too, is that even though that she goes through some dark places, there is a sense of optimism that she tries to provide. Like at the end of, maybe not at the end of every chapter, but at the end of the book, there's like this note of hopefulness that things will improve. And I think that is a good just outlook to always have, even when dealing with depression, just to keep faith that things can get better.
2: You know, I wonder about that. But obviously, people found it hopeful. You know, people found that to be a relatable ideal I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, You know, because I'm not in anybody else's head. So I don't want to say, oh, people obviously like this, because I don't know that they did. But it's pretty obvious that her continued success is dependent upon an audience being able to relate to her work. So I think it's pretty clear that they do.
1: I read an interview with her on Pixivision that said that she also kept in mind her audience while writing the story and was trying to make it accessible and relatable. So that people, you know, would be able to connect with it and read it. So I definitely think she was keeping that in mind as she was writing too, and picking what parts of her story to share. Because, of course, you know, she's only sharing as much as she is comfortable with and like which, you know, she wants to put out there. Like we're only seeing a part of her life, which I think is always important to keep in mind. But, you know, autobiographical works.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, Absolutely
2: curated it's got to be curated i mean you know i mean realistically i give away a lot of myself on Okazi, but i don't give them all of myself there's a lot of parts of my life that i will never tell you about mm-hmm. and you know it's just some of it has to stay private it's for own well-being and the well-being of people around us
0: yep just like just like how podcasts are only a part of our life
2: yeah <laughs> they're not your whole life
0: <laughs> sometimes I'm so it feels that way <laughs> I, you, look you'd be surprised yeah
2: <laughs> well you know and that is true I mean people do, do tend to assume that what they see of you is what there is mm-hmm. that's just natural I think pe- people don't really think about stuff like that it's why I think that being really famous must be the most one of the most incredible extraordinarily stressful things and I joke about that a lot being micro famous I can be at a con and people know me I walk out on the street and nobody knows who I am like that's great
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah like you know, when, when, like especially when you're younger or whatever, and you think like, oh man, I want to be famous and whatnot, and yeah, and you know, some uh, I don't know, maybe some people handle that kind of thing better than others, obviously, but like, I don't know, I th- th- there has to be a point where like uh, when you get to a certain level of fame, where you're just kind of like, yeah, I, this isn't all that is cracked up to be, you know?
2: It's gonna yeah. be, it's gonna be that almost immediately too. As soon as people, you're trying to have a quiet meal and people just keep coming up. or But the thing that always strikes me, the thing that I I am honestly kind of a little obsessed with is is this idea of standing in front of 75,000 people at a concert, for instance. (laughs) And they don't, want to be at the concert they want to have a piece of you there's a, a feeding frenzy for really famous people for michael jackson and and uh, and jenna jackson too you know i mean just to get the sense of i want to have pieces physically of you this you know that if they were to throw themselves at the right moment into the audience, they'd be ripped to pieces you know in this sort of bacchanal Oh, yeah. And I think about this all the time because that's exactly the kind of, you know, religious ecstasy you saw in Middle Ages. We get these stories of the ancient past where people are ripped apart by, you know, this, this group of maenads. And I actually think about that when I, when I see big concerts, I think there's not far enough away that I could be from that audience if I were a singer or a performer. Like I'm not. In a position with the 45 people in my room and in a panel that, that I feel threatened. But I, you know, I, I've talked to 12, I, I presented the use in a movie in front of 1200 people and it was a little freakish, you know, all that attention on you. <laughs> I was, I was really genuinely nervous and I can only imagine that's a 1200. Imagine at 12,000 or oh. 120,000, you know, where you're looking at all of the largest stadiums in the world and everyone is looking at you. That's gotta be terrifying. And I can imagine for someone who's putting out their their story about not being mentally well to have four million people buy that book.
1: But and the way Kabi describes writing the story, that she's selling her the life of her and her family in pieces, you know. It sounds so harsh and personal and difficult. Like it is, and to have that like scrutinized by a lot of different strangers on the internet. Like there's this scene where she's looking at reactions to Soul Exchange Diary, and she's seeing that how people have like criticized it and are disappointed at it, and it like hurts her because like this is her life. Like it's it is something so personal to her. It is like her story. Oh
2: yeah, it is. I mean, absolutely. If someone's looking at you going, yeah, that sucked. It's like, which part of it? The me part? <laughs> or the part that, you know, the part that I lived through that part? I mean, it's it's just extraordinarily. Uh, putting yourself out there anyway, and we all know this, right? Everybody knows as you put yourself out on a podcast, you put yourself out on as a lecturer, you put yourself out as you're writing fiction or a review or whatever.
0: Social media.
2: And any kind of social media, you put yourself out and, and you are always opening yourself up to criticism. It's why uh, fanfic is filled with, you know, fake names. You know, people putting not putting their real names on their fanfic. That's why I always wrote my fanfic under my real name to say, "Look, I don't care if you <laughs> don't like it. I'm not writing it for you." You know, uh, it takes it. But I was older when I started writing fanfic. I was well into my 30s, which puts me in a di- totally different headspace. I wasn't 15 and concerned about who I'd be or what I might have to do in the world. Um, and, and you could totally understand that people would use a fake name so as not to be seen as the person who wrote whatever that was. And to do your own real life that way is, you know, putting yourself out. It's, it's literally laying your head on a chopping block. And, and there's a weird fascination. You want people to say it was really good. You also want people to say it's really bad so that you can figure out what it is, but then you don't like them for it and you don't respect the people who like you and you don't respect the people who don't like you. You get to be Roger Ebert (laughs) who hated everybody.
0: As as much as Kabi, you know, looks looks herself up on the internet, there's also this part of herself where she's like, okay, th- like, there has to be a catch to all this praise, like, somebody has to be talking shit about me somewhere.
1: Yeah, she, she actively searched for criticism of herself, because she, there's a sense of her that was, like, insecure, that, like, her work could be so well-liked, that she could be so well-liked, and especially because it feels like, especially throughout lesbian hearings and a strew, a lot of soul saints are like she's seeking validation from her parents specifically yeah and wants to be praised by them be loved unconditionally by them and accepted by them
2: which of course they do you know and that's the part that as a, you're looking at it going but they do they just don't show it and if they did it would make you uncomfortable
3: <laughs> Yeah,
2: in a way that you don't realize until you yourself are an adult
1: Mm-hmm. They don't show it in the way that she wants or that she thinks is how
2: – It ought to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot of – I think a lot of kids feel that way. I think a lot of people feel that way about their parents, that they want them to say nice things. Like, um, I years ago had it out with my mom because she would – uh, she was always, in my mind, she was always very dismissive of everything I do. She doesn't understand anything I'm doing, obviously, you know, explaining anything I do. Every story of mine has to come with like a, a huge prelude to what it was that I was doing today. And and she has no patience for that. And then she could you know, always say to me, oh, well, I tell everybody else that I'm proud of you. And I'd be like, great, you know what you never do? Tell me you're proud of me. <laughs> and she was like, what? Like, she didn't realize, you know, that she'd go and tell me, oh, my, my daughter lectured at Harvard, but she didn't go, really? That's awesome. And she just has no idea. And, uh, and I'm not trash talking her. She just wasn't thinking about it. You know, she thought it was understood that, that she was proud of me. And she, it was. And I knew it. It wasn't like I didn't know. It's, sometimes it would be nice to hear, you know? You know what I'm saying, right? And I think a lot of that is very much what I get from Megata's work, that she's an adult child looking for the kind of affection that she thinks she wants based on her memory of affection as a child. Yeah. But if she were to actually get it as an adult, it would probably make her a little uncomfortable because it's also infantilizing her, and there has to be some middle space where you as an adult get a f- the kind of appreciation you want from your parents that also allows you to still stay an adult. And that's not easy. And very few people can <laughs> figure out what it is that they actually want. <laughs> you know, it's, it's part of the human condition, right? Uh, and that's really a relatable.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, her relationship with her parents is like a true line of these volumes that I think is like one aspect of her life that we see really really improve in terms of her understanding of her family and then realizing that they are there for her and they accept her like the climax of it is like when she turns 30 and she has her 30th birthday party and her grandparents come over and they watch videos of her as a child and then she realizes like then like all along, like from childhood until now, like her family has always been there for her, and the her and lover, her. her mom, writes her like a beautiful letter about it too and I think that's like a real turning point in her on in like her kind of reevaluating her relationship with her family
2: right, and right, then we exactly. see
1: in the remainder of the book, uh you know that. I think the way that she writes and draws them is so much more different because we see her dad smiling a lot more. I feel like she draws them a lot more warmly and depicts them more warmly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a she got past that thing that she felt was a bit of a wall between them and her. And and every time, because I'm reading it as me, I feel like so much of what we're seeing is her own need to create the conflict as much as to exist within the conflict, because humans are human. You know, and, and when I, because again, I'm a reader and a writer, and I think I am a pretty good grasp of human nature. So as a result, I can see sort of like where you're thinking, where she's sitting there, you know, saying there's a wall between us, and I'm thinking, I bet if we talked to her mother, she wouldn't say that.
1: Yeah, and we definitely see that in the book where she kind of projects a problem onto her mom. Like, she thinks that, oh, her mom is suffering because her mother-in-law is really mean to her. There's no love between her mom and dad.
2: Right, but then later her mother's like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't the problem. It was just, she was fine. That was what I expected. It was fine, you know. I actually want to go back to a point Colton made about um, graphic memoirs, about how we were all talking about how you know you're telling that story about a person that you were. There was a um, a comic that I read years ago. And speaking of graphic memoirs in the American sense, by Liz Prince's um, Tomboy. And when you were ta- when you two were talking about that, it really made me think about Tomboy, which is. Uh it's Liz Prince talking about her not binary gender as an adult looking back at her childhood. And it was pretty much her story was my story. So it was both relatable and very irritating because I lived it and don't care. Um so and that's a little different because a lot of people want to see themselves, but again, I'm past, sort of past that specific need. So I was like reading and going, yeah, 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 uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But what I really liked, and it's I like this a lot with Nagata's work too, when she steps aside from the narrative and comments. And she does this a lot um, at the end of chapters, where she comments on that thing that at that time felt really important. Now I'm looking back at it and going, "Why did I do that? Why? Why was that so important (laughs) to me? What? What? You know, what does that really mean?" And the biggest—I love that part. I love those parts where she's going, "Yes, I lived that way, and yes, this happened, and this is what I was thinking. Why? Or what did I mean for it? Or what do I expect from it?"
1: It's the kind of self-reflection you can really only have once you're away from that situation. You can look back and think, well, why did I behave that way? Why did I feel that way? I didn't need to invest so much of my energy on something that was not truly that important.
2: But at the time, it was. And so on the one hand, you want to investigate it, right? Right. And you want to go, why was, why was that so important? But then when you look at it backwards, like I, I have a very vivid memory of a, of a night when I was roughly about 17 years old. And in my head, it was very a thing. Like it was huge. And I look back <laughs> at it and go, it was, it was so not a thing. I was making it a thing. And what was my needs for it to be a thing? And it wasn't, it's very banal. And I'm not going to share the part of what it was, but when I think about it, I can feel on the one hand my 17-year-old feelings of that being very big and my my 54-year-old self going, it really wasn't big at all. (laughs) But the thing is, the funny part is that at 17, I knew that. I was making it a big thing. And I knew half of me at the time was going, you know, this isn't really a thing, right? (laughs) Because I'm me. And that's the way I was. So even if I'm going, you know, I'm going to go ahead and make this a big thing and try to feel it. But even at the time, I'm like it's really stupid. So when I look back, I have these literally competing emotions and I can actually kinda go, Well, you know, I now I understand why part of me said, Let's make this a thing because otherwise I wouldn't have had a thing that night. And it was a good night for a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It was just it's funny when you look back at it and you think, Oh yeah, now I know I made a big fucking deal of a thing. It wasn't at all.
0: <laughs> I mean when you're a teenager, everything seems like it's a big deal, even when it's not. So
2: yeah, and me as a teenager was saying it's not a big deal, but I'm making it a big deal because I feel like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not a big deal, but it kind of is. <laughs> yeah,
2: you know, it wasn't though. And that was the part that's the funny part. And if I actually told you the story, you'd be like, Are you fucking shitting me? <laughs> it was nothing. <laughs> Literally nothing. So and it wasn't drama, it was the opposite of drama. It was like the anti drama. So it was really funny in retrospect that I chose to make drama out of no drama just to feel the drama that it. it was pretty funny. But and I think that's a lot of what we're seeing with her.
1: Yeah, I think she does catastrophize a lot of the situations she finds herself in and applies feelings of shame or guilt to herself where there doesn't need to be. Uh She takes a lot of comments from her parents very personally and becomes very frustrated at that, like comment about her dad saying, like, oh, you're making me depressed. And then like she it really, really hurts her. And then another comment from a mom where she's like, you know, she's struggling with showing her mom lesbian experience with loneliness because she's afraid that her mom would be ashamed of her when she, like, reads the book. But, like, she kind of is lying in bed and her mom is like, why are you sleeping all the time when I come to see you? Stop it. You're, like, embarrassing yourself and this family. And then she takes that really hard and then freaks out about that.
2: Right. And it's nothing. It's really – it's not really – it's just a mom thing, Right. Right. And the thing that's amazing, is, I just, I'm just sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say the thing that's amazing is during all of this, she's actually working, not just on this book, but in the middle of my lesbian experience of loneliness being a huge hit. I was in the bookstores and I kept seeing her doing color, I, just walking through Japanese bookstores, I could see there were a bunch of cover illustrations. By her, she had such a distinct style. It wasn't hard to figure out it was her without even looking, just looking at it. And so once I saw that, I'm like, this woman's got work all (laughs) She's sitting here working through all of this. It seems like she's sitting there doing nothing. But she has work.
1: Yeah. And it reminds you that we're only seeing, like, certain parts of her life. And the people around her, like her family, are probably only seeing certain parts of her life. Because she is doing a lot of work. And I think this... I reread My Lesbian Experience before rereading Solo Exchange, and then I was thinking about, you know, she has that scene where she goes to the interview and mentions oh, one of my manga won this newcomer's award, or got an honorable uh, mention, or something, and up until that point in the book, she hadn't talked about her time that she was doing, like, writing manga. Right. Like, while all this other stuff that she was writing about was happening. And right, that was, like, right. the first time that was even mentioned. So... It's like a reminder that there is more that is like going on in her life that, you know, we're not seeing the people around her might not be seeing. And I just find that very interesting what she chooses to bring in and out of the story.
2: Right. I mean, if you actually go to her Pixiv feed, you'll see that she's doing a lot of work. Some of it is some of its commission. Some of it is a manga that she's drawing that has nothing to do with her life. Um, and some of it is uh, illustration work, and some of it's for herself. So yeah, we're you know the the temptation to think that we're really getting an entree to her whole existence is is very large. It's because that's that's the way she's presented it. You're getting this this entree into self, this access to herself. In the meantime, she's got a whole nother life going on. Her life. And it's interesting to remember. Again, we go back to the, you know, wanting a piece of her. It seems like we're getting all of these pieces, and all this access, and actually we're getting uh, a little bit of what, as I think that was a great phrase, uh, that she's catastrophized for our entertainment. To some extent, that's what we're getting.
1: Yeah, and, you know, she talks about her loneliness with her family uh, a lot, but She does write about at several points about her friends and interactions with her friends. And you are reminded that she does have, like, a social circle. And we don't see see them often in the manga. We don't know too much about them. But there are other people in her life. And there are people that she chooses not to write about. Like, the girl she becomes friends with briefly dates at the end of the first uh, volume of Solo Exchange. Like, she decides... You know, I don't want to continue writing about this person because I don't want to pry into their life. I don't want to hurt them. So she chooses not to explore that further in uh, the second volume.
2: And she has every right to, you know? I'm totally cool with that. It's just a good reminder that we don't get access. Uh, I think it's very interesting that what she did, and this is what I think... This is why I wrote the article I wrote about how she opened doors in an intersection, because what she did is she brought... What Nagata-sensei does is bring... A bunch of things that all had existence just kind of brings them into one space. And I wanted to do a retrospective of her work while she was alive and well, rather than waiting until she was dead and going, oh, you know, look, she was so influential. She really is, is currently influential. She took this idea of graphic medicine manga, this idea that you could talk about your physical and mental ailments. And they're not something that's going to put people off, which of course is is the generic mainstream concept, right? They're like, oh, well, we don't want to talk about that. It's too depressing. People don't want that. They want entertainment. But that relatability for a lot of people was entertainment. This idea that there's somebody out there doing the same thing they're doing or struggling with the same thing they're struggling with, that is empowering and entertaining to some extent. So she took that graphic medicine manga concept and then she... Also did something that was extraordinary in the sense that she comes out in a single phrase that is buried in the text and never ever ever made a big deal of. She doesn't go, oh I just want to admit I'm gay. She goes, Yeah, I knew that if I was looking for something more, you know, it would be a woman. And that's it. Boom. That's she moves on. And then yes, later on, she does she goes out, she hires the, the lesbian sex service, and yes, she goes out with a woman. But those are never the, the point of any of her narrative. Like the narrative is not, look at big arrows pointing, look, I had to deal with this. It was like a priori dealt with. The point of the, the story is her dealing with the emotional intimacy and physical intimacy, not the, not the sex of the person. And that was really key.
1: Yeah, I mean, her depression stems from different aspects of her life. And so these manga are about her, like, kind of working through those different aspects of her life, but her sexuality is, like, a key part of that. It is an important part of her identity and some of her struggles, but then she does take efforts to work through that as well by, you know, having experience and by trying to become more comfortable with it, going on a date.
2: Right, but the the discomfort is with the intimacy, Mm -hmm. not with the sexuality. And that's so super important because she just did that and moved on. And that's never really the issue. And I feel like that was such a huge step. But she, she's talking about, okay, the first thing she did, she talked about her mental unwellness. That's huge. And then she said, and also, by the way, I'm gay. And that's absolutely not the story here. <laughs> that was huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and those two things are so opposite of the way we make them in narrative most of the time
1: yeah i mean it is very special that it's not a story about her coming out and struggling with coming out it's like she knows who she is and so she but it's like just a deeper feeling of anxiety that prevents her from like making those connections that she tries to work on
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and i think that's very interesting and i i really appreciated that we don't have a big coming out scene with her parents either like the way they react, they they don't ever react specifically to her sexuality. Like it's like just about the book and in, in general and how they feel about that, which is very interesting.
2: Right, and that would be really something to write that kind of a book and say because it's not like she fictionalized that it was parents. You know, she wasn't. She she started with the premise. This is my diary, and so once you do that, then everything is sort of it's you. And so you hand this over and your parents are seeing what you, what you think of them, which maybe is a little complicated right there. And that's most, you know, most children, adult children or children's children don't really think about their parents as, as humans separate from the function of parent, right? And then parents almost never think of their children as separate from the function of child, even though, of course, parents are forced to deal with that once. Kids grow up and they start having sex and have relationships and move out and have children of their own. To some extent, they're required to think of their children as having a life outside them. But for parents to see what their kid thinks of them as parents would be disconcerting in most cases, I would say.
1: And I think that's what might have hurt her parents most, is that seeing her write so harshly, at least in lesbian experience, in the early parts of *Holy Change* diary about them, like her mom did mention to her that she did cry after reading it, and she was a little mean to her parents, like as she was writing it, she was just thinking about her, like her parents and relationship to her, like what they were doing for her or how they were making her feel,
2: or not for her, right? How are they? How are they fulfilling or not fulfilling needs that she had? Yeah.
1: But over the course of Solar Exchange, she starts to realize her parents are people outside of just her relationship with her. Like, when she moves out of the house and she comes back, she notices that her dad has taken up additional chores and that their lifestyle has kind of changed. and, And it kind of puts it in her mind that, oh, like, my parents can live a life without me they have lived a life without me and like me leaving i was she was so worried that her leaving would cause her mom to suffer be alone with no allies in the house but that wasn't the case at all like she didn't really understand the relationship her mom had with the people around her she was just kind of projecting her perception
2: it was good that she actually said that too and i think that probably is because of what happened with the first book you know but I mean, I can understand that her mother saying, "You know, this made me cry" is hurtful. But also, in a sense, it's 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 cathartic for mom too, getting to see what maybe she did not know about her daughter. So there's a you know there's it's a lot of stuff, I and mean, we're really getting a lot of deep looks at things for which we have surprisingly little context.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. It's it would be like listening to somebody on the train talking to a friend about something very intimate and very personal. And we'd have this really intense story, but absolutely zero context as to it. We don't really know these people. We don't really know what the situation is. So
0: Yeah, because that's only one part of the story.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and I do think that the fact that she's continuing to tell her story through less sympathetic unwellnesses. I mean, this last one, which is about about alcohol induced pancreatitis, will not be not relatable, I think, for a lot of people. But also maybe I could see there being a more, for Western readers specifically, a more moral judgment about it.
3: Mm, Yeah, probably. Whereas
2: her readers probably were not feeling a moral judgment about her depression so much. But I could see them being a little bit more moralistic about, about this. I read the fourth book. With the exact same mentality as as I read the other three, is like this is the same story. It's the same person. It's the same story. The physical, because in a lot of sense, your your the chemical cocktail in your brain not being functional is exactly the same as the chemical cocktail in your pancreas not being functional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not all that different, you know. It's an organ, and the chemicals aren't working in the right order. Um, so for me, it was I, I was able to not feel judgmental about this.
1: Yeah, I feel the problems are also connected, like her problems with her mental health fueled like her alcoholic dependency, which led to these problems with her pancreas and this pancreatitis. So even if she doesn't focus too much on the mental health aspect of it in the fourth book, I feel like the problems, you know, they're all interconnected, the decisions people make in their lives, you know, they affect other aspects of what happens to them in their lives.
2: The one thing I felt about the fourth book, and I hope everybody else gets that feeling too, is, um, I'm just going to quote myself here for my thing that more importantly, as we read about her desire to create new non-essay work, it's a testament to a creative drive, um, and her artistic and narrative abilities that from the inside of all of these mental and physical health crises, there is a talented and unique voice who wants to be seen and heard. A lot of the fourth book is her going, I'm trying to write a story that isn't this. And she does, and she includes it at the end of that volume. So we have a a story that is not nonfiction.
1: I'm glad.
2: Yeah, it's a narrative. But the thing is, as I said, there's other work she's doing elsewhere, but she wanted to draw something throughout a good chunk of the fourth book. Her desire is to create. And I know from my own self that I have to be personally in a really good emotional and healthy, energetic um, state of being before I can write fiction. Fiction is incredibly difficult. Nonfiction is so much easier. And so for me to do a review, I can do even if I'm feeling depressed or miserable, bored or unhappy or burnt out or whatever. Um, Although the review will probably reflect that. But for me to write fiction, I have to actually be in a really good state of physical and mental health. All of the energy has to be able to turn to burning the right bits of the candle. And so, for her to actually put that in there to show you, look, I did this thing. Whether or not you like it is irrelevant. The point is, look, original work, and I've included it, and it's original. I did not have to tell my own story here. So that's, I think, also the end is again hopeful.
0: Yeah, like for her, it's even monumental that she made a thing, and right. that that's. I feel like that's kind of relatable for me in particular too. Just because like, I I know I get that way whenever like, you know, we're, we're editing the show or whatnot. And I get through an episode, every time I get through an episode of the show and I get done editing, I'm like, Oh man, it feels good. I I made a thing and I'm going to finally put it out there. Like it, it just, it just feels, it just feels good to actually finish something, you know, regardless of, of its actual quality, I guess.
2: No, I absolutely agree. I've been writing a lot of short fiction, and it's not going to be world-shaking. It's just little random twiddle bits that come into my head. In the, but to get it out, I've been putting it on Medium because I have to put it somewhere in my my own website. sort of died a while back. And it's just nice to have, oh, yeah, I did this thing, and it wasn't in existence before I did it. Look at that. And it does feel good. And, and it doesn't matter to me whether or not people like it per se if they do great I'm very happy you know it's I, I'm not I don't I'll need the the external validation the validation is I got it done
3: I yeah. wrote it down
2: the words are there and then they're mine you know and that's and I think that there's something to be said for that particularly when you're actually a creative person <laughs>
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs>
2: and you know you are and you just have had a series of not getting stuff done
1: Hmm. yeah definitely. it's it's so hard to work on something or finish something if it starts to not feel like it is going anywhere or like your effort you've lost passion for making the thing you're making and you're just worried about what other people will think about it and you've just lost kind of the enthusiasm to keep working at it. It's like a real struggle. So I'm really glad to hear that Kabi has like kind of rekindled her drive to create her own stories just for the sake of making her own stories. Cause that is just what she wants to do. And it's like a huge thing because the reason that she drew lesbian experience and then continued on slowly Story stories, because she was struggling with creating her new fictional works, and she felt that by writing her own life it would like make it easier for her to draw and to make something
2: I think to some extent it's it's a little bit about piercing a a blister draining the wound once you've set it and you've worked through it i mean in, in a therapeutic kind of way maybe there's maybe you can make room for the new stuff
1: I think so I think that now that she's worked out a lot of like of the frustrations of the anxieties that she's been feeling and through that her relationships have improved especially with her family she's now kind of in a better place to want to and can focus on creating her own new fictional stories that like she's wants to
2: as far as we know because again We don't really know the whole story.
1: Right, right. You know,
2: and that's it. We we can make that assumption. And I agree with you. I want to make that assumption. I also think that probably based on past experience, she finds, she's been told, her editors find, her publishers find that when she ends each volume with something hopeful, it will bring the audience back. (laughs) As opposed to, you know, and yeah, I'm still depressed. So maybe there's that too. I'm not so idealistic to think that a little manipulation isn't
1: happening there. I do worry about that, too. But I am hopeful we'll see her pursue more original stories.
2: Well, as I said, she's always, the whole time, she's working on stuff. So, like I said, you're still only ever getting parts.
1: That is true. I mean, the only of her, like original fictional stories that we have translated uh, officially in english is the chika chan's diary or uh, chika chan's depression at the end of solo exchange volume two but just based on that you know i want to see her make more stories like this because she is so clearly putting in a lot of her own feelings towards society and kind of having to be put in a box and follow like what they have kind of imposed upon her in this story and uh, I like stories that are so clearly from the perspective of an author like kind of trying to put in their own feelings into their work and explore them so I I would like to see what kind of art she makes in this vein as well like what kind of story she tells like from her perspective
2: and I kind of want the opposite (laughs) I want her to be free of the need to beat the same eggs. I'm, I'm looking, I've been reading one of her, her, some of her work on her Pixiv, and it's completely different. Nothing to do with her at all. And not that she doesn't put herself into it. And I, uh, I, I kind of like that. I kind of like the, she did an illustration of, uh, one of the ugliest illustrations I've ever seen, um, of two girls kissing. It was just really, aesthetically unappealing and really well done and <laughs> I really liked the fact that it was like look she's just drawing this fucking sexy scene ugly because she can and I really was really glad to see that and I keep saying the word really but I was really glad that she was like this is not me this is not the same stuff this is this thing that was in my head that I wanted to put on paper and get out of here and I still think of it as paper even though obviously it's not um, to me that shows that the creative stuff has moved beyond the therapeutic stuff like i can look outside that sandbox now
1: that's great too i think like she is also in a state of mind that she can write you know just other things than something
2: else that isn't Mm -hmm. her not that when you write anything if you've ever done any sort of non-fiction creative work you know, not that you don't put yourself in it. You're always in your work. The difference is, are you going, hi, it's me, like, you know, that Monty Python sketch with the clowns, you know, the, <laughs> the silly part of going, hi, you know. And I feel like, to me, the worst writers are the ones who can't, Step back from their own work and let the work speak for themselves. And they have to say, Oh, well, look at how clever I am. This is me. Um, I have a whole bunch of, I'm reading several things at once right now that are, are just that the author, you could see the author learn to think like, we have Wikipedia open and look at this thing that I learned. I'm going to add this in right now. And it's so artificial and so unpleasant. And, and no, not unpleasant. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, it's funny. It's funny to see the like, oh yes, you had Wikipedia open and you inserted this thing like, like that, uh, the K- Kikoman factory was a Noda. Like, okay, great. I'm really <laughs> excellent. Good to know. In 1862, Kikoman soy, soy sauce was a thing. Yes. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I'm reading a bunch of stuff that's doing right now. And it's all ridiculous and funny. And, and I don't mind that, but I really like when people can get out of their own way. And, and do that. And so to me, that's always the sign that there's more energy, that she's doing stuff that isn't her specifically, you know. But I do really think that the thing that makes her so unique is that she, she centered these stories, she put them out there. She's changed how we as a manga reading audience in the West, not just in Japan, but in the West. And that's remarkable in itself, how we read manga and what we're looking for in manga. The idea that we may get more comic essays, manga essays, does that? I mean, 10 years ago, people were like, What? Why? <laughs> you want a lot of autobiographical about depressed manga? Who cares? Like, because that's just, it would never have happened 10, 20 years ago. And now people are like, Yes, comic manga. Woo, let's get a blank canvas. Yes, you know? Yeah. Blank canvas would have died in 2030, dead on the water.
1: Yeah, I feel like My Lesbian Experience paved the way for that getting licensed. Because, you know, I love Blank Canvas. Like, I read that before that was licensed uh, because I was a huge fan of Higashimura.
3: Right.
1: But even after Higashimura became, you know, very popular once Princess Jellyfish got licensed and Tokyo Terror Recker came out, like, you know, it took a while before Blank Canvas got licensed. And I think that was only because My Lesbian Experience, like, paved an interest I agree. in people to want to read more essay manga so yeah, it's They about want
2: that access. Yeah, that's and that's what I'm always telling people when you're when you're. Creating your podcast or creating your your Patreon or creating your your blog, what they want is that access to you. But yeah, you have to build the audience first because otherwise, no one cares what you're saying. So what happens is if you go out on Twitter, you go, oh, "I'm really depressed today. Oh, God, I wish I had said," you know. Ugh. If you say that to the five people you know, they already heard you. They heard you. That's not how that works. It doesn't become useful for anybody. But if you've got if you're if you're I don't know, I got to pick somebody who's. I don't know famous people anymore, a Kardashian. And they said, I have to tell you something. I've just been diagnosed with depression. People go, oh, you know, and so that they get this access to this person that they admire who's an influencer, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I agree. Higashimura absolutely would not have had her book license before lesbian experience, with is, but I'm glad it is. And I like the fact that they clearly at Seven Seas get the whole comic essay thing. They're actually getting how it can be useful and helpful. I have to say Seven Seas has really done amazing choices and amazing work with those choices. They have great translators. Um, getting Jocelyn Allen to do some of the stuff is, is always good because she's got a real touch with it. And I just think that on the whole, they've got great translators, um, and they're they're doing a really good job of understanding what their audience and on that side wants.
0: Mm-hmm. I have the first volume Soul Soul Exchange Diary like physically. I am holding it right now, and it's just like this is this is like a really nice like high quality release. Like I really feel like Seven C's like really uh, put their all in producing this.
2: Yeah, and I know they do. I know the folks there, and I know they care about once they've decided to pick up something and license it and put it out, they actually care to do a good job on it, which is always, it's it's a really interesting thing. I've been reviewing stuff for 20 years, and once upon a time, I had to actually write a paragraph at the end of every translation about the technicals. Like, oh, this font is really shitty, and the moire is really bad, and the uh, <laughs> translation choices were really terrible. And now it's like, yep, they do a great job. Like, I just don't – the only time I ever have to do anything is like, I just want to point out to you, the reading audience, what a great job they did. Like, for instance, talking in the license about Genjitsu, To boroboro ni hanashi, I said when they licensed it, they changed the title to "My Alcoholic Experience with Reality," and that, in and of itself, while it's not in any way a, a, a um, accurate tra- quote unquote accurate literal translation of, of the title, what it is is an excellent choice in English, and I, because you have on the English titles, because we we always do things alphabetically on our shelves by. Author in American bookstores. So all of manga is one thing, right? It's not so, like in Jap- Japanese manga, it's all separated by age group, age, you know, audience, and then, then publisher, and then imprint, and then author. Here we're like all one thing, it's just alphabetical or by author. If you look at the to Gov stuff, what you're gonna see is my lesbian experience, my solo exchange story, my solo exchange story, too, my alcoholic experience, you know. Uh, escape from reality. And so you have a constant refrain. It creates a body of literature that is identifiable from the spine and from the title. And so as a translation, that's such an excellent choice. So I'll point that out. I no longer have to say, oh, they did an okay job. It's like, look at this incredibly thoughtful translation choice.
1: Yeah. These are thoughtful, like, eye-grabbing titles that also very clearly indicate that these books are all part of the same series.
2: Yeah, exactly. Even though it'll be a different, it'll be a different color, um, even though it's different publishers in Japan, um, you're going to get this consistency that makes it very, very easy for an American audience to, to instantly identify that there's a continuity here. And I just think that's the kind of thing I'm spending my time talking about when I talk about the technical stuff um you know or if there's a really really good bit of lettering or or the editorial choices are really good or that kind of thing but but generally speaking i no longer in 20 years down the road have to say oh look at that really shitty font they picked <laughs> tokyo <laughs> pop for aria
1: oh no <laughs> um, and they
2: had to because adv had done aria and and they had done a really good job with it and then it got killed so then tokyo pop picked it up and Redid it with a really shitty font. <laughs> I don't blame them, <laughs> but it was really hard to read. You know, that was a long time ago now. It's been picked up again, I think, for a third time. I wonder if it'll ever be finished.
1: But uh- yeah, I'm very glad that Seven Seas has created, you know, an audience and a space for more autobio comics to come out. And I'm hoping that we'll continue to see more get released by them, and even outside of them. Like I just hope they're are more autobiobooks that come out and get published. Cause before Solo Exchanger or before Lessing Experience, like I couldn't think of too many books I had read that were like comics, And especially comics that were dealing with mental illness and uh health problems. Like the one book I can think of is Disappearance Diary by Hido Asma, which explored that his health mental health, but that's like the only book in that vein. So I'm hoping that you know we get more graphic medicine manga, but just more like autobiographies about you know people talking about what they have gone through in their lives too. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. I think there's it's a double edge. You know, there's a certain amount of I'm very interested, but then there's a certain amount of you know celebrity bios. You know, you're, you know. Do I really care what Kim Car- I'm using? I'm beating up on Kim yeah. Kardashian. I actually don't have any buy-in or not to her, but it's just the only name I can think of. I, I don't know who influencers are, so I mean, if she's doing a autobiographic uh, autobiography, and I'm sure she has one, I don't care. You know, and so there's a bit of a sense of that. Like if you're, uh, it's going to really depend. I mean, if if you're the the. I don't know, somebody who created, the guy who created Bleach, whose name is escaping me at the moment. But <laughs> if he does an autobiography, uh, I can't get the word out, autobiography of his own struggle with whatever, I'm probably not going to reach out and grab it. But other people might, because they wrote really Little Bleach and would like to know. So there's, there's, it's a door that's been opened. Comic essays have existed for years in manga. There was... Comic essays. When I first in 2002 went to Japan the very first time and went to Book Off for the very first time in Japan, there was already a category of comic essays at that time. And they were a lot of, uh, daily life stuff. It was a lot of women, the stuff on the shelves. And I'm not saying that was the entirety, but Book Off is a used bookstore. So that was where I saw the comic essay thing. A lot of it was like women writing about childbirth and childbearing, uh, childbearing and, 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 and housewifing and childbearing and I thought to myself at the time none of the magazines want to run this that's why it's here there were you know there was one or two magazines like Feel and Feel Young would have occasionally famous people like uh, soccer Zara Erica she would have a thing about her life with her cat and her kids and so you'd have some of those, but I think all the other stuff kind of went into comic essays. It was like, look, our lives are valid. Look, we have lives here. You know, it's all these, these sort of Jose artists, um, saying, look at our lives outside the manga that we create. And so that stuff's been around for 20 years or more. Um, and certainly you get things like, um, drifting classroom and,
1: um, um. Oh, you mean drifting life?
2: Uh, yeah, yes, exactly.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. I, my brain is, is zapping right now. <laughs> but anyway, yes, Tatsumi's work, where you're getting stuff about, um, you know, his life and that, that, you know, the, the, his struggle with getting, you know, becoming a monk. and all that, that stuff has all existed previous to this. But I definitely feel like there's a, a shift now into the, you can talk about other stuff too. You can talk about not just how difficult it was to become a monk, but why, why was it so hard for you? What was it that you dealt with? And I feel like these things are are all evolving over time. I think graphic medicine here in America is also amazing. Uh, there's a graphic medicine comic event every year. And I know folks who've written stuff that is graphic medicine. And it's just really interesting because we're talking about things like uh, somebody I know wrote a, mon- a comic about um, his father dying. And uh, somebody else I know wrote one, uh, Jennifer Hayden's story my tits, about her breast cancer. And so it, that sort of stuff is much less has to be pushed under the carpet now. It's like, yeah, you can't really stop me from telling the story, but not only can you not stop me, people actually want to read it. And I kind of think that's really a main, a really key change.
1: Yeah. The diversity of subjects being talked about is increasing.
2: Yeah. And and the the removal of those things from being whispered about. It's like that get them off the whisper network. You know, and talk about, hey, you know what, I'm a manga I'm a comic artist and I had breast cancer and here's the story of my dealing with it. And my family's dealing with it and all the people around me and, and how I dealt with them. And, and exactly the, the same thing is, is the goddess work.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you, you brought, you brought up Ty Kubo, uh, the creator of Bleach, just like an example yes, earlier. Um, <laughs> but, there. uh, I don't uh, see a Kubo, uh, I think, uh, for alumni would be interesting just because, uh, I, I know Kubo has mentioned, uh, you know, he has dealt with, at least some... Depression
1: yeah. and the physical health problems. I mean, he ended Bleach early because he got so physically ill, he just couldn't continue on, basically.
0: So the
2: Manga drawing is just brutal. It's a brutal
0: business. And, you know, there there have been stories uh, I think he, he, he had an anecdote about how like, uh, a, a kid with some terminal illness actually wrote to him and like, you know, wrote to him about you know himself and like how much he loves bleach and everything and that basically gave him the motivation to keep going like that's uh-huh. the, that that's the kind of stuff i would actually like if if kubo ever actually did like an auto bio comic like i would i would i would love to see i would love to read it just for just to maybe get a clarification on like you know what it was actually like dealing with that and writing you know one of the most popular manga in jump at the time you know
2: yeah, okay, that's fair. I mean, that's exactly the point. You know, it's it's I wouldn't, but yeah, you would, and that's that's important. I think again, it goes back to access.
0: And that's also despite how I feel about just bleach in general. So, <laughs> sure, so yeah. you well, know. that's
2: fair. I mean, I think that's reasonable. We don't have to love. I don't think you have to love the work to appreciate the the work that goes into it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: one of the one of the th- my favorite things in the world is to go to a, mu- a museum with someone who knows a lot about something I know nothing about. Um, I remember distinctly when I was in my master's program, we ended up at the Metropolitan Museum of uh, Art to visit the library because I was in my master's program as a librarian, and we went down to the library, we got to see the archives, and got the tour down there, and we we had the rest of the day open. We went up to the the top of the library to the museum and we just walked around and one of my classmates turned to to have been an expert in faux art, which I'd never even heard of at the time. And she was so excited to have somebody to talk to about it. And I let her just lead me around the galleries <laughs> talking about faux art and I learned a ton of stuff and I can't tell you any of it, but the point is that it was really interesting because that's exactly it. I learned something new.
1: I love learning about things from passionate and knowledgeable people. Knowledgeable people. I Absolutely. like expanding my horizons in that way. Oh Absolutely. yeah, that, those are always my best conversations. Is that when someone is just telling me about something they know so much about, and then can give me recommendations about how to learn more about it myself too.
2: Yeah. Also, that's a, very much to me the thing that we need to is, as as um, olds in the manga industry. We need to encourage with kids because I cannot stand the. The uber assholes are like, oh, kids today, they don't understand manga. And I'm like, so what? <laughs> so what? You were a jerk too. I mean, you were you were a puppy once. I and mean, so I'll be standing, when I'm standing in a bookstore back when we had bookstores, you know, a kid's really like, have you read Haiku? And I'm like, no, I've never read Haiku. <laughs> um, why did you tell me all about it? And then the kid stood there for like 20 minutes and raved and ranted and, and sang pans to this. This manga that he loved so much and he was so excited to be able to tell someone about it. And I was like, that's (laughs) awesome. And I don't know that I'm going to ever read Haikyuu, but he really loved it a lot. And I made him happy to listen to him with my, my interest about his passion. And, and that's how hard is that to do? What you don't get extra credit for being a dick, you know, going, Oh, wow, wow. Why would you want to learn about that? Like, so I think that's really important for us to want to learn other people's stories.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's something Cobb explores in the book too that listening is such an important thing to just, you know, communicate with people and understand them. Yeah,
2: I agree. I think her work is particularly fascinating because it's happening in real time. It's developing as a global audience is literally watching her do it. Um, it's very unusual for us to have somebody developing a whole new oeuvre while we watch them. Usually it's like Andy Warhol is doing it like in a basement and only a few people know about it and a couple people tell some other people and then ultimately the world will recognize it after he's dead. But for somebody to do this while we're all watching her in public, create this whole new style of communication through manga. And this whole new uh, artistic pattern and style is everything about it is not new, but it's all taking it into and putting it in ways and centering it differently and, and making it available to people in ways that would before Pixiv could not have happened. And so I think this is all really, really important, which is another reason why I wanted to write the article about Kabi Nagata, because if she could do that to manga in real time, then I wanted to change literary criticism in real time. We always talk about people in retrospect. The entire point of a retrospective is that we're looking back at their work. And why shouldn't we just look back at the work that she's done so far, knowing that that will change and that we'll do another one in another 20
1: years and another after that? The impact of her work while it's in progress of continuing to make an impact.
2: Um, as I say, I'm going to quote myself one more time, I apologize, but her body of work is notable enough that it's worth noting now during her life you know especially given this her mental state we don't know what her her future may or may not be so let's right now while she's still here let her know that we've all been impacted by it let's let her know that this is a thing that is of interest to people
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah i guess um with with that you know with that being said you know unless we unless we have any like just any final stray thoughts we want to put out there. I think that might be a good uh, note for us to end out, uh, to end on.
1: Yeah, well, I guess I have a
0: question for
1: Erica. It's just you know we mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show that you know a lot of us who just read only manga, you know, we're not too aware of, like, other graphic medicine books that are out there. So, I was just wondering about your recommendations of some other graphic medicine books folks should check out. I mean, we mentioned some at the top of the show, but, you know, some of your recommendations.
2: Well, I would actually recommend rather than take... I don't do recommendations really well. I'm very bad at that because I don't know what people like. So, I've I've always kind of semi-avoided that, but I will say go to graphicmedicine.org and take a look at the stuff they have. They do spotlights. They have a sister site of graphic medicine in J- Japanese. So you can take a look at that. They have a YouTube channel. Um, they have their own conference, which this year they did online. And they have the conference keynote is online. Uh, the conference keynote is called Queer Mad Comics, A Personal History. And so they have a really, really good grasp of the kinds of intersections and graphic medicine is right, right, right away. It's a, it's an intersection and they kind of get that. And I really think that they're worth looking at and that you're going to find so much stuff just from, you're going to just find such an extraordinary variety of things that I, rather than me saying you should read this or that, I'm going to say go to graphicmedicine.org and just go for it because there is a massive body of work there that's been curated for you to take a look at, and I I highly recommend pretty much all of it.
1: Awesome. That's a great resource. and I'm definitely keen to look into more graphic medicine books.
0: And uh, we'll definitely leave links in the show notes for anybody who's interested as well.
1: Well, I hope
2: you enjoy it. And if you do out there, if you've read anything that you think is good in the show notes, in the comments, go ahead, share because I think that it's uh it's awesome to let people know what you found to be useful and and uh, relatable and entertaining.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, I suppose that wraps it up on our discussion of Solo Exchange Diary, and I think we touched upon like a lot of key aspects of like what makes Habib's work so remarkable and some of the core themes and stories of the book. And I want to thank you, Erica, for coming on the show again and talking about it with us.
2: Uh, thank you so much for having me. I was so delighted to be invited this time and uh, always. And I really think that Nagata Sensei's work is, is really industry changing. Oh, yeah. And so I'm really, really excited that you guys thought to, to take a look at it. Everything, everything that happens now will be new. And so I think it's always good to look back and say, "Look, sh- this is how she changed the world." Now let's go see where where we go from here.
1: Definitely, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to check in on her again when *Alcoholic Experience* comes out.
2: Yeah, I think you're gonna find that to be a very interesting book. I found it. I, I really, I find her work interesting. Very, very interesting. It's, 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 it's kind of hard to be inside someone's head, you know,
1: sometimes. Especially when you can real ha- really have a great sense of empathy or an understanding of what they're going through, I admit that rereading Solo Exchange Diary, you know, e- even though I'd read it before, it was still very difficult uh, for me, just because I could recognize so many of the thoughts and so many experiences she had. So even though I'm generally a fast reader, like it, I actually took quite a bit of time to read through this because I kind of had to stop after it got a little intense every once in a while but like i think that speaks to the power of her story and her storytelling and also speaks to like the impact that her story has uh and can resonate with people on such a personal level
0: mm-hmm. um, me personally i um i i think i think i had this problem on uh when, when we originally talked about lesbian experience with loneliness but where you know, I couldn't necessarily relate to a lot of Kabi's like feelings or situations entirely, just her specific, you know, whatever's going on in her life. But like, uh, even even when I can't necessarily relate to her specific feelings, I, I always find that the way she illustrates certain thoughts and feelings are very like uh, palatable and, uh, and and very like easy to read. Like, even if I can't relate to them necessarily for whatever reason, I. I I always feel like I I can understand what she's going through if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, I think she creates some very precise and very powerful uh, visual metaphors. Like that one chapter again, where she is thinking about like having a knife held toward her back, like as she's getting like hurtful comments, like this sh- shame, like dripping like black blood over her, dousing her with that, and then. Again, the whole metaphor of, like, you know, the sunlight representing all the positive comments she's getting is coming in, but, like, she's still sitting in the bed, bloodied, with a knife still stuck in her back, you know? I think she's really great at, like, illustrating, you know, those kind of, like, powerful, with her uncomfortable feelings. Like, the another one is, like, when her heart is, like, being tied by rope. Like, because she... as And it's being squeezed, like, as she's, again, like having a hurtful conversation, hurtful, you know, experience with her family's reaction to her work. Like, uh, there are just some things that, I you know, that are very, like, kind of simple and direct, but they, you know, because of that, they hit really hard. At least, it, especially if you can, you know, uh, understand the place where they're coming from and empathize and relate with that.
2: To me, the the main impact is really her use of color.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, Because she
2: only has the one color and then black becomes everything else. And so if you flip through the, just flip through the book really quickly, any of her books, you can see when the darkness builds. You can see when the pressure is existing because she'll actually physically draw this black pressing down on her or squeezing in her. And I think it's, it's visually, it's a very, very striking style. But it's going to change in the the fourth one. She her art has changed. It's a different story, and there's a lot of the same, but you're going to see a lot of different stuff too. Particularly when she starts to discuss things like her enzyme levels, she has a different, more more um, infomercial way of putting things.
1: Interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing her artistic evolution with her next book too. But yeah, that use of black that was always so impactful because of the stark contrast with panels surrounding it that have more pink and definitely the most dramatic panels like emphasize black more and especially in the absence of any pink color those definitely stand out as the most dramatic and fraught emotional panels so yeah i think her use of color and white black and pink is just really really brilliant
2: i definitely recommend if you really do like her work to go check her Pixiv page because you'll be surprised i think at, at- how colorful her palette actually is outside this
0: we'll definitely leave a link to that as well um but uh yeah i i can't wait to read her next book too and i'm I'm sure we'll i'm sure Lum and i will probably talk about it once it's out at some point
2: Excellent. Excellent.
0: so yeah but um yeah i i think i think we could probably end the show there yeah uh like like lum said erica thank you so much for coming on this was a this was a real pleasure
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really really appreciate it. I have a f- great time talking to you every time.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh I guess for uh for all of our uh, patrons out there who are listening to this. Hi patrons. If uh if they don't know already, you know, just uh if you can just let them know where to find you online.
2: Um you can find me at okazu.yuricon.com and uh, on Twitter at okazu yuri. That's o k a z u um, I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash okazu. And, in fact, I'm going to be doing an online Yuri panel at the end of this month on the 31st. Uh, patrons on my Patreon will have backstage access on the 27th, where you're going to physically get to watch me set up my studio because I have to move furniture <laughs> and set up lights and stuff. Uh, and so we'll be doing that online um, for fun, and that, that'll that be sort of backstage access. And on the 31st, uh, I'll be doing uh i Yuri Panel, and that's open to everybody. It'll be on YouTube, because for some reason my patrons wanted YouTube. And uh, it's just, it's like any other Yuri Panel, you're going to get to hear me talk about the industry, and we've had a lot of changes in the last couple months. Uh, a lot of really great stuff is happening, despite uh, the pandemic. I'd say that, that Yuri Manga has never been stronger. Uh, and ureonomy is always kind of in a weird liminal space anyway. So we have a lot of really cool things to talk about, and I'll, I'll be taking questions uh, on YouTube, and, and we'll we'll chat for a while until I get tired or bored. I didn't mean that, of course. I never get tired of talking about this until my voice runs out. But So hopefully you'll be there, and hopefully uh, you can join me, and please feel free to become a patron and get your questions prioritized and chat with me anytime you want.
0: Oh, yeah. We'll, awesome. uh, we'll, well, we'll see if we could try to post this a little earlier than usual. But, uh, I mean, if, if for, if for some reason we can't, you know, and, you know, this happens to come out a little after, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, t- just putting it out there. If, it, you know, you should, you should still subscribe to, 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 uh, to Erica's Patreon if you're interested. So. So
2: to be fair, I put very little patron only content up because the content on Okazu is public.
0: That's fair, yeah.
2: But what my patrons do have is access to me that my non-patron people have. So you have prioritized questions and you can talk to me in a a more personal way. And then about once a year, I run a campaign that if you've uh, been a patron at a certain level of support, you get uh, an hour-long call with me if you want or a private Yuri panel or whatever, and I've actually made some really cool friends that way. So it's it's a fun little thing. Mostly what you get for as benefits is just, you know, being my friend as long as you give me money. That's pretty <laughs> much the rule. So uh, you know, it's all fair.
0: I, I feel like even if you don't have a lot of like bonus content to offer, you know, Patreon's still a good way to support the creators that you like regardless, I think. So, you know, there's that. Um so yeah, you should just go go support Erica if you really like her work.
2: And uh, you'll be helping to pay for guest reviewers and, you know, stuff. So it's not like you're just putting money in my pocket. You're actually putting money in other people's pockets as well.
0: All right. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening uh, to our discussion of Solo Exchange Diary from Nagata Kabi. Uh, Like we mentioned at the top of the show, this is not the last time we will be discussing her works. uh, Because as we mentioned earlier... We will be having a podcast dedicated to talking about her newest work coming out in English from Seven Seas, uh, My Alcoholic Escape from Reality, uh, that we will be once again recording with our good friend, uh, friend of the show, Erica Friedman of Okazu Yuri. And we will be recording that and it should be coming out at the end of this month, at the end of June. Uh, So once again, if you are not a patron of ours already and you want to go ahead and uh, listen to that podcast when it comes out, please sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Maga Mavericks and uh, get ready for when that comes out. We're going to be recording that pretty soon here at the time of this recording, and uh, we look forward to talking about more of Nagata Kabi's works. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we're going to keep continuing on and talking about Kabi's works as long as she puts stuff out. But yeah, look forward to that. Again, patreon.com slash Maga Mavericks. But again, that's enough Patreon stuff. I think we should move on to some community shoutouts. Lem, if you want to... I mean, I guess I don't know. I I have some stuff too. Uh, Do you want to talk about your shoutouts first or should I? Why don't you take the lead? Okay. Um... So first off, uh, going into community shoutouts now, obviously, uh, I'm going to bring up something that um, we said we were going to talk about in the Demon Slayer episode and totally forgot to mention. So apologies to our good friend, Marion, Microwavey on Twitter, Uh, a good friend of the show, also, you know, involved in so many podcasts, uh, involved in what I would like to call the V-Lord GTZ Empire of podcasts, (laughs) you know, with stuff such as the Demon Slayer podcast. Uh, over Solo Shami King podcast, Saturday Night Shaggy, as well as, uh, you know, a, a part of their own stuff too, such as, uh, the Good Friends Anime podcast, or, uh, the Good Friends Anime Club podcast, I should say, as well as, uh, a View from the Top, a Haiku podcast. Uh, I know that's on hiatus, but I still wanted the shout out anyway. And so, yeah, Marion has a lot of hats on a lot of racks, as I would like to say. They do a lot of stuff, but uh, one thing I do want to shout out in particular was something that uh, they had mentioned on that episode of the podcast they were working on that is now out, is their uh, article, their their piece on the Toonami Faithful website, uh, their article on bo 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 an anime that um, I think it's safe to say that Lum and I are both huge fans of. We don't talk about it a lot. Um, because we're, we're, we're saving our energy and our talk and our gushing for when we eventually do talk about Bobo Bo on this podcast. It is going to happen one day. I promise that. Um, but we're, we both love Bobo Bo. It's probably one of our favorite shows. And, you know, so when, when we found out Marion was going to do a piece on it for Tanami Faithful, um, you know, we were both pretty excited for it, uh, as you can hear on the Demon Slayer podcast. And now that article is out. I had a lot of fun reading it. In general, I, I just I just love seeing anything on Bobobo Bo because I, I feel like, I don't know if I want to say it's had like a resurgence, but it feels like more and more people are like kind of like remembering it and like kind of like uh, reminiscing about it a lot these days. And uh, it is cool to see anybody just talk about this show that strangely was a part of the Toonami lineup, but I have to thank Toonami for it because... Uh, you know, I, I I watched it pretty much almost every week, and it was fun. I have a lot of fond memories of Bobo, and I'm I'm really glad that Marion took the time to talk about it.
1: Absolutely, always love seeing some loving tributes to Bobo. And Marion wrote a very thoughtful and wonderful tribute to it.
0: mm Hmm. But uh, as much as I would love to keep talking about Bobo and Marion more, you know, uh, I actually have a lot of shoutouts for for this time. Usually, I don't always have a lot because sometimes I forget to look for stuff or. And I, I don't always find stuff that I like actively want to talk about, but I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about. So I'll hopefully try to go through some of these as quick as I can. But, um, the next thing I want to talk about, not really anime or manga related, but it's just, uh, something that I had a lot of fun listening to. And I have been listening to for a few months now, uh, it's probably one of my favorite podcasts to listen to every Monday, just kind of at work. But, uh, uh, something that I don't always talk about that I don't think I've ever mentioned, uh, SpongeBob's one of my favorite cartoons. Uh, you know, it's something that like I also grew up on and is just something that uh, recently I've been kind of like rewatching a lot of it's, it's it's kind of a comfort show for me. It's like, oh, man, you know, if I'm eating dinner or just doing whatever, uh, I want to watch something but I just kind of want to, like, put something on in the background. What about what do I put on? Oh, I'll just put on an episode of SpongeBob. It's legitimately like, again, one of my favorite cartoons and I love watching it and uh you know, uh I kind of had the urge to kind of look for podcasts about it, and uh I want to shout out an episode of the Absorbent and Yellow podcast, uh hosted by Sam, basically on the episodes uh Nasty Patty and Idiot Box, uh two really great episodes of the show, probably some of my favorites, especially Idiot Box. Um I thought this episode was really fun in particular. Uh basically if you ever if you ever listen to like Talking Simpsons or What a Cartoon, it's kind of a podcast in that same style. You know where Sam talks about an episode of SpongeBob. Every episode, kind of like, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of deep dives into the history of SpongeBob and whatever particular episode that he's talking about. And uh, I really liked the discussion for this episode in particular. I thought it was very good. And uh, yeah, I, I just I just wanted to shout it out in general that uh, I really enjoy this podcast, and uh, I, it's just it's just nice to find a podcast that uh, you know. Uh, dives deep into a cartoon that I really enjoy and uh, I would really recommend it, especially if you're a SpongeBob fan. So there's that. And um, I guess I also just want to like give an update on um, on a shout out that we did for the Demon Slayer podcast in particular that uh, Lum, I have to thank you. You got me into Bruce Leslie and his content and I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, Yeah. Since the last time we've uh, shouted him out on the show in case you didn't listen to that episode, uh, Bruce Leslie used to be, uh, I guess it still is kind of like more of a like a Western comic book guy, uh, did a lot of videos on like uh, superhero comics and characters and whatnot, has recently beginning been getting into anime, uh, especially with Demon Slayer. They've done an entire watch through of the first season uh, with his daughter kind of going through the show and is c- currently doing the same thing with Jujutsu Kaisen. Uh, but is also doing like these kind of like first impression videos of a lot of different stuff. Like uh, I think at the time of this recording last night, I just watched a video on uh, Cells at Work. Uh, they've also done like a first impressions video on stuff like One Punch Man. Um, I left a comment in the One Punch Man video that uh, Bruce actually responded to. I, I'm I'm doing the Lord's work, uh, the work of the Ginta Mafia, trying to recommend Gintama to him to uh, try to watch and maybe do a video on it. And uh, he said he might check it out. So there's that. Uh, I even told him that we talked about him on the podcast. So Bruce, if you're listening, hi. We really like your stuff. And uh, I think I'm going to keep watching. I'm subscribed. Like, I'm, I'm hooked. So thank you, Lum.
1: Excellent. Yeah. I, like I said, I love Bruce's content. It's so, like, wholesome and positive and thoughtful. Yeah, he's just a swell guy with swell thoughts and opinions. I'm like, I always look forward to
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, One one last thing about Bruce. Um, I also watched his kind of breakdown of the first volume of the Demon Slayer manga. Uh, Obviously, him being more of a comics guy, like, I really appreciate the way he kind of broke down the first volume and, like, what works about it. I hope he does more manga videos, because I really liked what he did with that video in particular.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, Just some more YouTube stuff. Uh, I recently came across a video from Braxton, or uh, Just Stop, on YouTube as well. Uh, where they did an entire <laughs> five-and-a-half-hour video blindly reviewing every episode of Gintama. Uh, obviously, you know, with Gintama in particular, like, uh, you know, uh, the whole story hasn't been animated yet. I mean, I guess if you count the movie, you know, the final movie basically animated the rest of the series, but, like, you know, that's not really out yet, so uh they kind of had to, like, read the last few chapters of the manga to get, like, closure on the series in particular, and, um... You know, I I wasn't really sure about it at first just because, like, you know, um, I'm not really sure how to say this without, like, because I don't want to make it sound like I don't like their show or anything, but uh, I, when I listened to the Nencast cast, uh, you know, talk about Gintama, that was something I was really excited for because, you know, it's it's always fun seeing new people get into Gintama, but um, yeah. the, the, <laughs> the, the, the the Nen show in particular is kind of an example of something I was afraid of where, like, reviewing Gintama in the format they did doesn't really work a lot of the time because it really... Gintama is one of those things where, like, if you're not into the comedy of it and it doesn't jive with you, the rest of it is going to be really hard to get into, and I totally understand that. Um, You know, everybody has different tastes and whatnot, so I I totally understand, like, why they felt the way they did about the show by the end, but I I will be honest, that in particular... As excited as I was in the beginning, it did. It just, it didn't make for a very pleasant listen after a while because I was like, "Oh man!" No, I, I
1: mean they were not enthusiastic about the series at all.
0: No, yeah, and I was really hesitant to bring it up because I don't want to make it sound like I'm like upset or anything or like you, you know.
1: know. I love the Nen Show, but yeah, just uh, you know, it didn't work out. That just didn't suit their taste and uh, humor and what they
0: were looking for. Mhm it was kind of a hard listen after a while unfortunately yeah, I just, I'm just- a
1: fan no but uh, yeah, you know that's why you know when someone's like, "Hey, I want to get into Kintama, but I'm only interested really in the story parts." I'm like, you know, then uh, here's a list of like the story parts, and if you enjoy that, then you have all this awesome comedy stuff to watch afterward. Like I did that with my friend Spark of Spirit way back in the day. It worked. Like he watched the story arcs and he enjoyed the story arcs, and then he watched the comedy stuff, and it worked. That got him to Kintama, and so you know you gotta just take your own uh, approach the the way that'll best suit a person's taste if they want to get into something
0: mm-hmm. but uh, i i bring that up because uh braxton's video on gintama in particular i i was kind of hesitant at first cause i was like oh man i i i wonder how he's gonna feel about some of this stuff but like i i think he got into it pretty quickly um i think he from what i could tell he obviously really enjoyed a lot of the comedy um I think was very fair to the series as, a, and was a lot more positive on it than I was uh, anticipating. Uh, I really liked a lot of their uh, insight and like what they were able to kind of like pick up on as they went through the series, uh, especially for like a blind watch through. It was a good experience. Like I really looked forward to like I. it's a five and a half hour video. Obviously, I had to kind of like watch it in like multiple sittings. And I, I wanted to watch the whole thing before I, like, recommended it, to be sure. But, like, yeah, I I appreciate a lot of the insights that he brought to the table. And uh, a lot of the stuff that he picked up on I thought was interesting. And uh, not to give too much away, but he really liked it by the end. And uh, he really appreciated it for what it was. And, uh, you know, that that's all I can ask for, you know? Like, it was it was a good, fair review of Gintama. And, uh I really appreciate it. And if you're in the mood for long form content and you got some time to kill and you're especially a big Gintama fan and want to see new people get into it, like, like I do, uh, then please go check it out. It was great. I really liked it. And I guess like the last thing I'll shout out here real quick is, um, I don't normally listen to the Shonen Jump podcast a lot, but I did listen to the episode with Deb Aoki and I thought it was also a very interesting episode of the podcast. It was great to have Deb on and, uh, yeah i just really enjoyed the podcast just in general i love hearing more about deb and her kind of experience as like a, a manga fan and critic and uh i thought it was very educational and enjoyable
1: yeah i have not got our answer yet but you know i always love hearing deb's talks and insights on the manga industry so i'm
0: looking forward to checking it out soon i will say they did answer the question that you sent in and i thought she gave a very interesting answer excellent but that's kind of about it from my shout outs lum do you have anything you want to shout out?
1: I have quite a few. Yes, I do. First, on a non-anime mode-related shout-out, I really do want to recommend Junior Victor Reed's analysis of hip-hop and animation, basically doing a survey of different Western anime series and how they approach discussing hip-hop as a Miko genre and as a kind of a culture in animation and like the way some and the portrayals that they get right and some shows that get the portrayals wrong and how their perspective can be Good, bad, negative, positive, like a full spectrum of like different depictions in a bunch of different cartoons, and especially when considering like audience people who made it like going through all that, and it' was also nice to hear perspectives from eJs you know, Quarterly who, before creating OKKO, OK was, like, an independent animator and created, like, this web series, Knockforce, which was heavily, you know, hip-hop inspired. So that was really cool to get his, like, perceptions on, like, creating that web series and then, like, his thoughts on how hip-hop is used in animation and stuff. Like, it was a really great analysis and really great survey of, like, just the history of how cartoons have, like, approached and integrated hip-hop. And like, yeah, I, I really appreciate it a lot. It was like such a well researched piece, and I love the conclusion that it was like Teen Titans Go had the best portrayal of hip hop in animation because its episode on Day Soul, like not only just portrayed Day Soul as like real people, like who talked authentically, but also like the focus of the episode was so met in that it was like about how De La Soul got screwed over in the royalties by their label, and, like, the entire episode was done about, like, going to, uh, like, get the royalties back in whatever. is like, very, very clever so yeah I, I like that conclusion i was like okay that was probably that's like the best commentary of hip-hop and animation is that episode giant scale so it's it's really cool video essay and i think it deserves a lot more views like it's been out for a week at this time of this recording and i think it's like like such a well-made video i definitely want to spread more attention to it because I think it definitely deserves to be seen by more people because like it's such a really well researched and thoughtful piece. On the subject of other YouTube videos that I really want to recommend, like I mentioned I was very excited to watch Bruce Leslie get into *Demon Slayer, but I was also very excited to watch Dan Merle, who is like my go-to guy for box office analysis. Uh, his channel is always such a great one for movie reviews and commentary as well as his weekly box office charts breakdown and you know because of Demon Slayer's performance in the to Ring Back office, like that really got him interested in checking out Demon Slayer and he did his due diligence he watched through Demon Slayer and then he watched the movie and he did a review of it and he really got into it like Dan Merle is not really an anime guy like he's checked out a few Ghibli films he's seen Your Name but he's not really seen a ton of animes. this was his first anime TV series I ever watched, but he came away like really enjoying it, and he did a really great review of like what stood out to him as like a non-anime viewer, as like what really impressed him, what he found super compelling about the characters and story, and what impressed him about the in- animation. Like he did have to have a. Kind of caveat that there was like one thing series that really did bog it down for him, and that was the Nitsu. Like, it was not a fan of but like overall, like he really enjoyed the show. Like in future videos, he is in his background set. Like he has like the Demon Slayer Blu rays featured prominently. Like he really became a big fan. So like I was really happy to see that. I was really happy to hear his perspective on the series as rude because I always love hearing his thoughts on film, movie television and yeah, I'm just. Was- Glad to hear him be a Demon Slayer fan. I'm curious if this is going to encourage him to check out more anime uh, in the future. Because I'd definitely love to hear more of his perspective on it. It's like someone who, again, is just not really an anime guy. But appreciates good filmmaking, good storytelling. Now on the subject of in series, I do want to spotlight a recent anime feminist piece on Black Clover. Now, anime feminist was previously published in you know, pieces from other people who have, like, kind of praised Black Clover's portrayal of female characters. This piece was more of, like, a critique, though, by Alice Miller, where she kind of looked at, you know, there are some, like, good elements to these Black Clover's female character story arcs, but there are also some baggage in terms of, like, a lot of the female characters kind of have their arcs, like, revolve around validation from men or or over relationships to men and like their personalities are often defined by their relationships to men and so that's kind of disappointing that like a, their arcs like have to be so intrusively entwined with male characters whereas there are a lot of male characters that don't have arcs you know tied to female characters in a similar way. I think the one part of her critique that I don't agree with is her critique of Maria Leona because she was like, oh, she disappears from the story after the Elf Invasion arc and she doesn't have connections with other characters. But I think that kind of doesn't like, I think that kind of contradicts like some of the uh, some of the argument because like Maria is not a character who's defined by her relationship to male characters necessarily and she is like just a pretty strong character that other people respect and idolize so I feel that's an exception to what she's talking about but in general I agreed with a lot of what she said even though I think that black Clover has great female characters and great arcs like I love Noelle but I do think that some of her criticisms a lot of her criticisms are actually quite valid, and I think they are keeping in mind. Like, Black Clover does have really great favorite characters in my opinion, but there are still a lot of room for improvement in general, and a lot of Battle of the Shonen manga, Black is an exception. Now, for uh, another great dissection and uh, discussion of the Battle of the Shonen series, a classic Battle of series, I really love Magnus Wayne's episode of Naruto recently. Like, that was just a great episode, you know, like, again, just talking about what makes Naruto such, like, a compelling comic from the get-go, like, also discussing like how Naruto obviously kind of clearly kind of shifted gears early on to kind of adapt to like what readers respond to or like to give it more legs as a long running story, and how they you know, I season comics were kinda of were able to pick up, oh, here's where some changes were kind of probably made when you read the story, like here's where some of these tone shifts are happening. So I thought it was a great discussion of, you know, what like makes Naruto work and like what make it such a compelling comic. But I also really appreciate it as part of the episode discussion with a librarian guest they had to discuss like what would be great manga you would recommend to younger readers, especially kids. And I thought that was a great discussion to spotlight it. Like a lot of titles I didn't wasn't even aware of, especially for titles for like the titles for like really young readers, especially. Like for the from the Whiz Kids imprint. Like, oh I this wasn't even on my radar. So I thought that was a really great discussion and a really great recommendation list for, like, you know, child-friendly, very easily recommendable series, you know, that you can give the kids. So I really appreciate that aspect of the discussion on that podcast as well. So overall, it was a really, really great discussion about Naruto and about a uh, great recommendation list of manga for younger readers. Now, I also want to sh- move on to some Twitter-related shoutouts. Like one is just a, a cool tribute animation by. Tara Billinger and Zach Bellissimo who are the creators of the web cartoon Long Gone Gulch which is like a really excellently stylized animated short uh, cartoon that they're developing like as a series but they made like a just cool Lupin tribute animation to celebrate part 6 being announced the 50th anniversary of Lupin anime and it's just so cool in concept it's just like Lupin is like uh, standing next to a TV the TV starts glitching out and so he starts hitting it and as he hits it like not only does uh the image on the TV like change with the static but he also like changes like each time he hits it like his jacket color changes from like green to pink red blue and then like he hits it like hard one time and he like goes to his black and white manga design And it's, like, such a clever tribute piece to Lupin. Like, I really appreciated it. I really appreciate the nuances and details. Like, on the TV screen, they're, like, worked in, like, Monkey Punch-esque drawings of the Lupin crew. In addition to that, like, this is something that I... Like, missed on my first viewing, but when he kicks the TV at the end, like, Momo flashes on screen. So, that was a really cool detail, too. So, it's like a short, like, just 11 second animation, but I really appreciate, like, the clear love that they had for Lupin in it. So, I really wanted to shout out. I also just like these creators in general. They're, like, great artists and, I really like blonde goggles, so yeah, just check out their short the tribute piece. But also on the subject of Twitter-related stuff, Rumoko Takahashi recently set up her own Twitter. Now, obviously, it's run mostly by her assistants, but it's really cool to just, you know see Rumoko Takahashi you have a Twitter presence. And then she like drew like a special drawing of Lum uh, as part of the first post, and then shared like a drawing of Kyoko. She gave to Gojo Ayama a few years ago as part of an art exchange. She's been answering some thank you. and a's it's just cool to see takashi have a web presence and like see like a new level of interaction between her and her fans obviously that makes me very happy As a big group takashi fan so i think it's really cool and if you are a takashi fan again like it's definitely a must follow you know for her you know q a answering and also news about her stuff like she also revealed like her schedule on her twitter which was like super interesting it's like apparently she like she She works from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. on manga. And, like, during the day, it's like she's doing, like, a bunch of chores and stuff. It's just so interesting, her her schedule that she basically kind of leaves the daylight hours kind of free for herself to do like all these other things and then like just works through the night like it's not uh, it's not a healthy schedule uh, especially for you know this woman in her 60s at this point but it's like so interesting to finally see and know what her schedule is like so I really appreciate that I think it's like super cool insights now on the subject of Ruma Takahashi and con kind of stuff like and on the subject of our good friend Marion, like we shouted out their Bobo retrospective but they have also also written some other great pieces recently and on the Weekly Khan edition talkback blog they wrote a great guide to recent Khan titles included among the titles spotlighted are of course Roku Mermaid Saga as well as Mezanakoku which Marion had very kind words about and very enthusiastic recommendations for but Marion also recommended a huge swat of different Shikakakon titles released in the past couple months that are you know a great spotlight post for those titles like Call of the Night ZOM 100, Fly Me to the Moon. They basically cover a huge, broad selection of different titles, give a lot of great recommendations. I think every title that they spotlighted, they recommended. I think, like, the lowest rating recommendation they probably give was to Golden Japanese, just because it was kind of, like, more of a fluffy thing, but it's still something they enjoyed. But, yeah, like, it's a very great overview, and encapsulation of like some of the cream of the crop Shigaka tiles released in English in the past couple of months, So if you definitely want kind of a cool little reading guide, cool little starter for to get into recent shaggy titles released in the US, definitely check that out. Now we are going to be moving into uh, the next piece of Marion so I Water Megan and the next of a like a selection of pieces that are basically urologizing and uh, retrospective on Kentaro Miura after he passed away recently. And we discuss our thoughts, our feelings on Kentaro Miura's passing in our next episode to listen to, where we uncover you know, and round up the recent news. But since we didn't have shout-outs on the episode because it's so long, like I wanna include these retrospectives as community shout-outs here and Marion's is such a wonderful piece like it's so exhaustive like I know that at one point he was they were discussing like maybe splitting this up as different pieces because like it covers so many different bases not only like Berserk's legacy in terms of everything it's influenced but also how they personally responded to the themes of Berserk what made it special to them in terms of its themes as well as covering you know some of the caveats or some things people might find parts well in terms of Casca's character arc and like both you know how, you know, Koska is such a compelling character and there's so much interesting stuff to look at her as a character who was subject to a lot of trauma, but also, you know, some of the uncomfortable stuff that also comes with that. That is kinda something to navigate. But also there's an itemized list at one point in this article where Marion basically goes through a bunch of different talking points when it comes to Berserk that covers a lot of different issues or, or takes that people would have on it, including like a different different anime adaptations uh how successful is slash how difficult to collect it is talking about the hiatuses talking about how it's okay reserve would never be finished and basically Marion's article also dovetails in kind of a great point about overwork and how miura very likely passed away so early because of overwork and it was a great discussion of hey you know this is a problem and this is something we should be mindful of like you know, this because this person like impacted our lives so much and we should do what we can as fans to effect change on the lives of people we care about. And this includes, you know, improving work conditions to creators or just, you know, being there to reach out to people who we see are struggling or in need. And so it's just a great tribute to Mira's legacy. And again taught so many talking points when it came to Berserk. And there were just really so many lovely tributes to Berserk in general. Dark Horse of course published a tribute to Berserk, where both the founder and president of Dark Horse, as well as two key editors at Dark Horse, Chris Warner who's the editor of Berserk, and Carl Horn, who's like editor extraordinaire at Dark Horse, basically recounted what they found so special about Berserk and Yor's world, and their own personal experiences with Berserk, and it was just such thoughtful thoughts and comments from them. But also NPR even published a great tribute to Berserk by Eldelka Delka, and they talked about their with they talked about, like, what made Berserk stand out as such a comic because of Yura's just gorgeous artwork and his legacy. And it's just nice to see, like, you know, Berserk and Kentaro Miura was eulogized, like, on, like, a big mainstream news publication like MTR. Like, that was really, really nice to see that a big publication like them look, would pay attention to this and write such a thoughtful piece on this. But of course, like one of the most thoughtful pieces definitely came from But Why where Kate Basically, got comments from a lot of the Bob Wido team on what Berserk meant to them. Talked about like the collective grief they felt at Kamitara passing, but then also using that as an opportunity to discuss like how Berserk as a series itself like explored these themes of grief and trauma and confronting them, and you know using community as a way to heal from them to give you the strength to push forward from struggle. And, yeah, I just thought it was just a very heartfelt piece. It was nice to see so many people come together to contribute to this article to just describe what Berserk means in them and how inspiring it has been to them. I also feel this is true of Peter Phobian's great Berserk retrospective, article like how Berserk has affected him in his life, recounting personal experiences he had Berserk, like getting a friend into Berserk and like that friend, like really having the most awful comments like he's ever had on any piece of media like on Berserk and like nothing else and how his with re- sort changed as he grew up like how the way he related to Berserk related to Guts and his art changed as he grew up from his high school days into adulthood like you know how he once felt like that same loneliness that Guts did you know, he once felt like he had to take all the, the stuff that he was shouldering, like, on his own. But then, like, in the arts post-Golden Age, you know, he recognized, like, hey, you know, reaching out to other people. He doesn't have to, like, hold on to, like, all this pain. Like, like there's so much to be gained in, like, you know, uh, having these thoughts of doubt and self-fear, but, like, you know, having people to... To kind of guide you, to have connections with, to to help you, kind of push you forward in these problems you're having. So, like, it's a really thoughtful, wonderfully written piece. And it also goes into a discussion of this idea of, like, Berserk will be an unfinished masterpiece. But, like, discussing, you know, with, with Berserk, where the destination it was heading, like, the story itself is just too big. You know, what kind of ending could it even have? It's like, just, there's, there's so many open ended questions, but even so, even with those open ended questions, like, the destination it did reach and where the manga is at, what we have is just so satisfying and it is still so poignant and it really still means so much. It really means a lot, a lot in where Guts' character arc. Went and the destination it reached in the final recently published chapters. So again, it was a very heartfelt, thoughtful, personal piece that I, I really appreciated. Like a lot of people just wrote so many loving comments and tributes to Berserk and it, they were all just so incredibly moving. And I, I think that, you know, it's such a tragedy, Kentaro I mean, passed away so young, but I think that all these pieces, they do warm my heart to see like the impact that he left the legacy that he's left how he has affected personally just so many people how he has touched so many lives and the messages that have reverberated that have you know gave people hope and the strength to push forward like i definitely feel that way i i and i think that it's just heartwarming to seeing like just as a community, just so many people can resonate with those feelings. All of us kind of collectively like feel that same kind of admiration and thankfulness for like the the story of Berserk and kind of the messages it has imparted on us. But on um, the subject of other like kind of thoughtful retrospective pieces, well, this one is like more of a vent piece of like something you know that has kind of been a problem for a long time. But Lindsay Loverich has recently written an article. On ANN about, you know, how, what Sailor Moon meant to her, like her experiences, you know, Sailor Moon got her into anime fandom and it's kind of helped her along to the career path she has now as managing editor of ANN. Um, she kind of, you know, talks about how frustrating it is that even though Sailor Moon is just this big, important franchise for so many people, that it's never really gotten a respectable release, a satisfying release. It's always had, the fans have always had to put up with kind of some subpar offerings in one form or another, talking of course about the original DSC dub, talking about some of the early home video releases that were not only prohibitively expensive, but barely on the market for any period of time, like they were only like sold for like a year by ADV before being discontinued, it was even then it was just like the first two seasons only. And then, of course, the disappointment of Sailor Moon Crystal is, like, this big new adaptation people look forward for just, like, turning out to be such a wash of an adaptation, such a disappointment. And then Viz's Blu-rays and that whole controversy and how they really botched that first Blu-ray, and it was so clear, like, they did not have the best masters, even though they tried to deny it. And, of course, you know, that leaving a huge tarnished... Kind of staying on like Sailor Moon's home video release over here after it being long awaited for so many times. Talking about the different manga releases and the fact that like there isn't a single one of them that is lacking in some sort of translation problem, some sort of like weird localization decision that makes not really a single English edition truly satisfying for fans. And then, of course, it is all such a build up to kind of the, the most recent kind of blemish on the franchise, which is, you know, the Sailor Moon Eternal films are now on Netflix and they're as films like they're beautifully animated and gorgeous and stuff. But there's an unfortunate harsh in the fact that the ADR director for the dub was Todd Habercorn and Todd Haberkorn, uh is a outed sexual predator like he I mean, he admitted to an alleged rape Uh, accusation against him. Like at the time of when all the accusations were coming out against Rick Manonia, he like, there was one about Haberkorn that he kind of admitted to and then made a big deal about And then Lindsay was trying to, you know, have some follow-ups on this story. And, you know, Haberkorn was not only, like, extremely rude to her, like, he went behind her back and emailed, like, her peers and, like, can he trust her to be unbiased because she was, quote-unquote, like, a feminist and whatnot. So he was, like, acting like such an asshole. Like, I mean, he's, you know, P.O.S. and stuff like that. So, you know, it's kind of sucks that Sailor Moon, which is a feminist-minded series, like, people that, like, people that so many women and girls, like, you know, it's so important to an entire generation of women and girls who got it animated just in general like because of its messages because of its themes and it, it just sucks that like the adr director of it for these new films like probably the best animated looking films uh, mm-hmm. uh installments of the anime franchise is just a, a total creep and jerkwad, and it, it's really sucks that like sailor moon just continues to kind of get the short stick kind of continues to get blemishes on what should be, like, just a franchise that can be so easily enjoyed time and again. And I can definitely empathize with Lindsay's continued frustrations, like, you know, wanting to look forward to new Sailor Moon things, but continually being let down, like, every time. So I really appreciated that piece a lot. And my final recommendations, my final shout-outs for this time are basically kind of resource posts fundraiser post. first is you know there's been a lot of chaos and awfulness going wrong with the conflict between israel and palestine right now and israel's aggression towards palestine so A Feminist has rounded up like a great collection of resources for the educating and supporting hashtag palestine movement so They offer a lot of good reading lists and a lot of good links to aid organizations if you want to help Palestinians in need right now, and I think that's definitely a cause to be mindful of and be educated about and, like, go and support people in need. And ANN recently set up a Trevor Project page for Zach Bergstein because, you know, it's been kind of the, the year memorial of, like, when he passed away, and... The goal of the Predator Project is to, you know, re- have, raise funds to help LGBTQ youth who struggle with suicidal thoughts and depression and, you know, help, you know, save the lives of young queer teens. And they set up a fundraiser campaign and they've managed to break down several, like, uh, goals, fundraising goals right now, but they still have the page going. They still have an opportunity to, uh, support the cause on the page, you know, to donate some funds on there fundraiser page so definitely I think if you haven't yet and I think it's a cause worth supporting and it definitely I think this is something that is such a wonderful tribute to what Zach stood for and what he believed in that I definitely think uh, I I really would recommend people check this out and whatever amount that you can donate uh, I think that would be just super you know wonderful and uh yeah that about does it for my shoutouts for this time. There were a lot of, but it kind of is like doing it for two because the next episode, the news episode is so long that we couldn't do shoutouts in this one. So a lot of stuff to catch up on and share with here, but there's a lot of cool stuff here to check out. So I hope you all look into them.
0: All right. Yeah. I mean, like you said, we had a lot of stuff to go through, but uh, I think that's going to be about it for the show. I mean... Before we plug all of our usual stuff, you know, I guess just look forward to the next uh, month or two of the podcast. Uh, I think we mentioned it offhand at the top of the show, but, uh, we, we do have a lot of really cool, like LGBTQ plus, uh, themed kind of podcast episodes coming up. Uh, a lot of different like series and topics that we, uh, we definitely want to cover. I think originally we wanted to do like a, like a month theme kind of thing, but, uh, it's, it's probably, we're probably going to actually end up spreading it over, like, the next month or two just because of our schedule and everything, but, uh.
1: Yeah, it'll kind of be what happened last summer is that, like, we, we have a lot of, uh, LGBTQ manga
0: podcasts kind of released over the course of the summer. Mm-hmm. Also, especially because we have a, I won't say which ones, but we have a few podcasts that, uh, we have a little trouble kind of getting off the ground because of scheduling conflicts, but we are we'll resolve those eventually. We'll we'll make it work. It's it's the return of our Dragon Ball podcast all over again. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll, we'll eventually get those out. But basically, just just to say, you know, th- look forward to a summer full of LGBTQ plus themed podcast coming your way. Uh, this will not be the last one, and yeah, look forward to those. But uh, I think we can finally plug the rest of our stuff and head on out of here. Lum, where can the people find you?
1: Yeah, you can find me at Ramayasha on Twitter. as LUMRAMYASHA on a variety of places, the anime Revelation and any list for LUMRAMYASHA. That's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on all com. Got a lot of books coming in. Got a lot of good reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. You can also find the other podcasts I do on all com. These include LUMP Squad, the University of Focus podcast I do with my good friend Andrew AC Yoshimura, where we explore the wonderful wacky world we're gonna here, et cetera. we've basically caught up on the mono releases so now we're going into the films and like we're really excited to dig into the films like, we had a great discussion on Only You and beautiful dreamer like there's so much to talk about that we're going to be saving it into do. like we're going to have one podcast just dedicated onto to the history of the film and the legacy of the film and one podcast dedicated to the discussion of the film itself so we're, there's a lot of exciting plans we have for a lot squads so look forward to more great yourself uh, discussion on there if you're a fan and of course Monger outside movies the show where we talk about anime movies you can also find that on orangecom.com and uh, basically that's also all those podcasts are also available on our podcast feed just among Outside. Feed, but the Lung Squad also has its own podcast feed and you can follow Lum Squad on Twitter at underscore Squad as well and on the subject of the other podcasts I do I was recently a guest on to Tonami Fateful podcast recently and it was a lot of fun. I was a guest on the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Golden Wind podcast. We basically talked about the last third of Golden Wind, discussed like what we liked about the final stretch of the series, our thoughts on the arc as a whole, thoughts on Diavolo, like, what we like about it, everything like it, what we don't, uh, thoughts about the theme of JoJo's fate and destiny and how Part 5 explores and approaches that theme and how it kind of sets the stage up for... Further elaboration on that theme going forward in part six and beyond. So it was a great conversation, so touching based on a lot of great parts of Golden Wind, and I also really enjoyed being on the TFP episode discussing Black Clover's Devil Banishers arc, the anime original arc of Black Clover that is really really good. It's one of my favorite anime original arcs, fifth quote unquote filler arcs because it talks about a lot of themes and topics that Black Clover itself kind of gives mention to but doesn't explore very deeply like it really explores kind of the lower classes of the clover kingdom those who live on the outskirts those are like the most marginalized and really focuses on them and how the system of the clover kingdom has failed them just institutionally just systemically and how those frustrations have kind of manifested into basically a revolt in them turning into and trusting in, like, the power of devils or the power of, like, the game that protects them. It's just so interesting. Concept for an arc that I just really, really enjoyed it, and we had a really great discussion on it. Like, not everyone was, like, as positive uh, going into it as, into the discussion as me, but, like, I I think we had a really great conversation of the arc strengths and weaknesses and what really makes a good anime original storyline in general. So, definitely check out those Konami Fable podcast episodes. They were a lot of fun to do, and I think they'll be a lot of fun to listen to. And my last shout-out, of course, will be for my art. If you like the art I do for the show, the thumbnails I draw, the illustrations and animations I make, you can find all of that on my Instagram, at SidArtWorks.
0: All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also, you know, host and produce a lot of other podcasts on the side. Uh, one specifically that I'm going to talk about for this episode in particular, uh, I'm also one of the hosts of the uh, of the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast, the SSA podcast uh, over at ssanetwork.com. Uh, right now, we have just started a uh, kind of a... F- for them, it's a rewatch. For me, it's kind of my first time going through it. But we are starting kind of a watch-through podcast about uh, Sosei No Aquarian, and uh yeah we're basically gonna be going over uh the first season of Aquarion uh I think the one movie and then Aquarion Evol. we're gonna go through most of the franchise I think except for the one entry that I think is bad I don't know <laughs> uh d- doctor and Foxy know a, a lot more about Aquarion than I do it's d- pretty much one of their favorite shows and one they really love talking about a lot so much so that uh you know they're dedicating an in- they're they're dedicating an entire chunk of their podcast to Rewatching the whole thing and uh, making me go through it as the guinea pig who has not seen it and is my first time watching through it. It's uh, it's interesting so far. That's kind of all I have to say. Um, I can't wait to go through the rest of it. The first episode of that is out now. Uh, that's episode one fifty one of the SSA podcast. We'll probably leave a link in the show notes along with everything else we've talked about. But uh, that's it. Kind of in lieu of my usual trying to promote on my podcast. Just just go listen to that. We just put it up it's fun and if you're a fan of aquarion 2, uh, you know all like 12 people in the universe who love aquarion uh, go go listen to it it was it's it's pretty fun so far um, but as for basically everything else here uh, You can basically listen to every episode of Manga Mavericks over at all-comic.com. This is where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, We've already talked about our Patreon so much this episode, so I go through the whole spiel again. But uh, once again, I will say if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and our discussion on Soul Exchange Diary, uh, we have a bunch of other podcasts like this, a bunch of like one-off podcasts and stuff. Uh, that you could find at our five dollar tier in particular, where we post at least one bonus podcast at the end of every month, which are usually very exclusive to our Patreon. But once again, we wanted to upload this one in particular to promote our upcoming episode uh, covering uh, my alcoholic escape from reality that we will be posting on our on our Patreon exclusively uh, at the end of this month, at the end of June. Again, you could find all this and more at patreon.com slash manga Once again, it is the best place to support us. Uh, really helps to keep the lights on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we really appreciate all in any support you give us. Um, but as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash alt.comic or on twitter.com slash comic underscore But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us at Manga underscore Mavericks or at Tumblr at Magamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks, basically for different like excerpts of the podcast and whatnot, and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks. Email us anything at mavericks at gmail.com. What did you think about this episode of the podcast? Do you have any thoughts on... uh, uh, all of Nagata Kabi's works. Um, you know, email us anything about like whatever manga you're reading, whatever manga you want to hear us talk about on the show. Anything about manga or the podcast, you can just email us at at gmail.com. We love getting emails and we will read them on the show if you send them to us. Uh, but the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts We're on so many different platforms. Uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts in particular, it really helps the visibility of our show. Uh, Helps us get out there to more listeners, and uh, you know, we just appreciate any feedback you're willing to give us. Uh, We really take that very seriously and try to use it as best we can to kind of like, you know, just make the show that much better. And yeah, that's really gonna be about it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, This has been episode 161 of the Mangamerics podcast on allcomic.com. We will see you guys next time for episode 162. Bye, guys. Sayonara!